the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in this wide world of ours with 24 time zones covered by this program, which is coast to coast to coast to coast AM, actually. Uh, spreading and getting larger all the time. Uh, I'd like to welcome a brand new affiliate. It would be WMEQ in. Stay with me this on this one, folks. Uh, Menominee, Wisconsin. Yeah, I think I did it. <laughs> I got to close anyway. Uh, let me try it again. Menominee, Menominee, Menominee. That's, that's, that's pretty close, I think, Wisconsin. Someone will call me up and tell me the right way to do it. 880 on the dial. I'm very, very happy to be on there. The GM there, uh, Rich Hensley, and the PD, Mike Cushman. Great, uh, uh, certainly great to have you on board. Uh, listen, I, I, something has really irritated me big time, and I want to vent, and then we'll move on here. I told you last night uh, when I brought Hal Lindsay on that we had an incident uh, here in Trump in which a young man uh, with, a, with a sword uh, commandeered a school bus and uh, I drove it down toward California Roll ended up rolling the school bus in a 70 mile an hour chase and when they arrested him they found plans that indicated that he might uh, uh, have uh, had designs on bombing the high school here and they evacuated the high school and, uh, it was a pretty awful story of course uh, but you know, then I observed, I, I noticed that uh, Drudge picked it up, and then uh, I noticed that uh, it was the lead story in Las Vegas, of course. And the way Las Vegas, one of the stations in Las Vegas handled it, I thought, well, it just really pissed me off, to be frank with you. Uh, they essentially interviewed somebody, which they, uh, you know, decide they've got editorial right to uh, uh, put on what they want. But this man took the opportunity to come on and say, that Pahrump is the dumping ground, you know, for the worst of Las Vegas. And that really annoyed me. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, cities in glass houses ought not, especially cities that have had 50 homicides before the middle of the year, shouldn't be throwing stones at their sister town over here in uh, uh, Pahrump. This is a beautiful, quiet, getaway kind of place to live as a general rule. And those kind of incidents, those head shakers, that, uh, that that did happen here happened in small towns all across America. It's as, as likely or as unlikely to happen here as anywhere else. Fact of the matter is, it happens everywhere now. But to see you know a sister city take an opportunity to uh, uh, to slam us uh, in such a obviously intentionally, in my opinion, uh, vicious manner. Uh, well, fine, go ahead. But uh, my my comment would be. Uh, look, the only the only reason Las Vegas is where it is because that's where uh, that, that's that's where the, uh, the the Godfather of Las Vegas uh, put his foot down, and said, so, "Okay, it's going to be here," and that's how it got there. Well, uh, frankly, the valley over here is twice the size; doesn't have the uh, pollution problems because we have an open-ended valley, and uh, we also have uh, really good water. So. I don't know why they took such a, a shot, decided to take such a shot by allowing such an interview, because it's just, I thought it was a poor, poor thing to do. Poor, poor thing to do indeed. This can happen anywhere, and if there's anything we've learned since all of these head shakers began, it's that this kind of thing can happen anywhere, big towns, small towns, good families, bad families. 
they just happen. Otherwise, let's see what's going on in the world. An Islamic charity and its director were charged with perjury today and accused by the FBI of supporting terrorists who plotted to assassinate the Pope, tried to obtain nuclear weapons for Osama bin Laden. Wow, federal agents said the Benevolence International Foundation had links to bin Laden that go back decades and moved sizable amounts of cash for his al-Qaeda terrorist network during the 1990s. So, in other words, this charity, supposed charity, that was going toward uh, finding nuclear bombs for Osama bin Laden and so forth, as charged by the FBI. Oh, boy. My goodness. Twenty-six Palestinian civilians and police emerged Tuesday, finally, from the Church of the Nativity, the largest group to leave uh, one of Christianity's holiest shrines since the month-long standoff between Israel's army and a group of armed militants, of all places, you know, to occupy the very spot where Jesus was born. I stood there. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to do. Whatever you think, you know, of uh, religion in general, and uh, uh, whatever you think of, uh, however religious you are or are not, uh, when you stand in that spot where Jesus was born, you can feel it. You can feel something really serious and profound. I, I stood there. My wife stood there. She cried. And it's an amazing place. And to see that occupied with men, men with guns. Hmm. Here's an interesting story. One in five new drugs has serious side effects that do not show up until well after the medicine has received a government approval. According to a study that exposes what one researcher is calling an alarming game of medical Russian roulette. Wow. The researchers went so far as to suggest that doctors should subscribe older drugs when possible, unless a new one is truly superior. My, my, my. Isn't that interesting? Uh... That would be one in five that actually make it through. You know, a lot of people complain the uh, FDA process to get something uh, through is um, just absolutely burdensome and too much. And yet here we find maybe it's not enough. Well, one day you hear one thing, next day you hear another, right? Uh, pleas of uh, rejecting pleas of mental illness. A jury has sentenced a man to death today for the shooting deaths of two young daughters. What prosecutors called the ultimate revenge against his ex-wife. The very same jury last week convicted uh, John Bataglia of murder, capital murder that would be, for killing the girls ages six and nine. Our Senate is about to take on the issue of cloning. The headline is, uh, is Senate faces fiercest fight cloning. The Senate is gearing up for a historic decision on uh, human embryo cloning that could affect everything from medical research to how the sanctity of human life is defined and which party controls Capitol Hill in 2003. It's one of the most emotional, morally fraught issues this Congress has taken up thus far. Lobbyists on one side, led by the biotechnology industry, promised breakthrough medical cures for millions of people. Facing all kinds of debilitating injuries and diseases, that is the upside, maybe. 
the other side, which includes an unusual coalition, coalition this is very interesting, of right-to-life conservatives and pro-choice liberals, oh, brother, when do they ever get together, warns of a bleak new world where babies are designed, poor women are exploited for their eggs, and human embryos are bought and sold to produce spare parts for others. At the heart of the policy debate is a distinction between reproductive cloning, using cloned human embryos to produce babies, and therapeutic cloning to develop medical cures. Both use the exact same techniques, and a firewall between the two is not very easy to define or enforce. So we'll see. What do you think we ought to do? I, too, think this is one of the biggest questions, not only the U.S., but the entire world faces right now. Look, look at this story. I mentioned it last night briefly with Hal Lindsey, but the story is from Italy, Rome, an Italian fertility specialist who said, you'll recall, he intends to create the first human clone, told a television show on Wednesday that not one but three women were pregnant with clones. Earlier this month, a Middle East newspaper whipped up a storm of controversy by quoting uh, that a same doctor as saying that a woman in his program was pregnant, but gave no details, making it clear whether it was the result of cloning. The Italian doctor has refused to confirm or deny the story, but told state TV on Wednesday that three cloned pregnancies exist in the world at the moment. Said he, there are three pregnancies. He said two of the three pregnancies were developing in Russia and one in an Islamic state, and that they were six to nine weeks along. So, flash, folks, this is not so much an academic debate anymore. We've got, the clones are on the way. The clones are in the cooker. However you want to put it, the clones, the clones are certainly on the way. So whether we like it or not, the world is proceeding with this technology, and we're going to have clones. Now, what will they be? Well, some people argue they'll be nothing essentially but, uh, you know, exact twins. In other words, uh, you would have a little twin of yourself, an exact twin of yourself, right? But there are going to be monsters. Everybody that I've talked to on this subject agrees on one thing, and that is... There are going to be monsters. There are going to be mistakes. There are going to be all kinds of things that happen that are not, not good, or potentially not good at all. So something for us all to think about. I, I wonder how you feel about it. Is this the point where we truly are playing God? Boy, are we playing God. Holy smokes. I don't know, you know, I don't know myself. I have been turning this over and over and over and over. I guess I understand the potential upside. But I think science sometimes can go uh, too far, too fast, before we understand what we're doing. And we may create something the world may not like so much. Now, I don't know if I ought to read this or not, but I guess I will. I haven't had any such dream, but uh, 
But Christy writes, uh, hey, Art, here's one for you. About a month ago, I had the same dream three nights in a row. Now, the dream was that Chinese soldiers were invading the U.S. This past Saturday, I was out with a girlfriend who told me the following. About a month ago, six different people that she works with had exactly the same dream on exactly the same night. They dreamed of Chinese paratroopers invading the U.S. I told her, I had the same dream. Could you possibly see if anyone else out there in Radio Land has had the dream? It would be worth knowing, don't you think? Yes, I do, actually. As unlikely as I think it is that uh, the Chinese will march into Los Angeles, spreading east rapidly, east and north from L.A. probably, right? Actually, you'd land across... Probably have to land up towards San Francisco and Seattle and, you know, have several front fronts and then move east. But any country crazy enough to invade us uh, by land, well, they, they just couldn't do it. The Chinese couldn't sustain that kind of logistical effort, you know, to keep their troops supplied. Even if they had the will and the intent, uh, it seems to me they would be picked off rather quickly by Americans who are probably in no mood to be fooled with right now. But still in all, if anybody's had that dream, uh, it would be interesting to hear about, wouldn't it? Bosses, uh, this comes from Great Britain, the Sunday Mail in Great Britain. Bosses at Radio Clyde, that's apparently a big you know, radio deal in Great Britain. Uh, bosses at Radio Clyde have been forced to close one of their studios after scared DJs said it was haunted. Sunday male astrologer uh, Frank Pickledon says that he was attacked. He suffered mysterious scratches on his arm during his regular phone-in slot in Studio 3. He and presenter Bill Smith, they call them presenters over there, were also plagued by technical faults and falling microphones. Frank said, something strange has happened here in the past. I can feel it. Bill and Frank have vowed never to work there again, never. But they took Clyde's eye-in-the-sky girl, Sharon Oakley, along yesterday for a final look. Bill said, we'd only been there a few minutes when equipment began to start playing up. Then the microphones came tumbling down on top of us. Next thing I heard was a yelp from Frank, and he said something had attacked him. Yeah, that would do it. You know, that, that really would do it. I mean, you can have technical plagues that go on. But, but but technical plagues, followed by microphones falling down on you, uh, then followed by a, an actual physical attack, that would do it for me, too. So they're not going back, unless there's some sort of exorcism or something. So that's it. I mean, they, they, this group has actually been driven out, <laughs> completely driven out of uh, a studio there by... Now, that's incredible, by a ghost or by something they surely do not understand. And then uh, one other thing that I touched on last night that I really do want to mention again, uh, you know, we were sort of ticking off a list last night of things that are going to spell out uh, the end of history, I think is the way Hal Lindsey uh, put it, and one of them was this. And I could read stories like this just about every night. Greece's health ministry on Tuesday ordered all schools, all universities closed. That's very serious. Through the end of the week after uh, 13 people appeared to be suffering from some unidentified virus that has now killed three as concern grew 
as you might expect, uh, lines of people fearing they might be infected got much longer at hospitals and medical clinics as concerned uh, mounted experts at the ministry's special infections control center. I guess that's like our CDC, uh, right, met to discuss how to deal with infections as they awaited the results of tests to identify the virus. They expected to have those by tomorrow, Wednesday. So right now, they have absolutely no idea what they're up against. Uh, here's an interesting BBC story. You always got to go to the BBC to get these things. I wonder why that is. It, the headline is, uh, A UN Warns of Looming Water Crisis. It says more than 2.7 billion people, 2.7 billion, that, that's damn near half the people on Earth, are going to face severe water shortages by the year 2025 if the world should continue consuming water at the same rate. That's from the UN, folks. A new report released to uh, mark the World Water Day, I didn't know we had it on Friday, says another 2.5 billion people will live in areas where it will be difficult to find sufficient fresh water to meet their needs. That's another 2.5 billion. So 2.7 billion will face severe water shortages. Another 2.5 billion, uh, at this point you're uh, well over half the population of the entire world, uh, will not have sufficient fresh water. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty heavy stuff when you consider it, and uh, we talked about that a little last night, too. There's going to be water wars, and going on all across the U.S. right now is an incredible drought. I mean, the news is bubbling under. Soon you're going to see more and more stories about the, the drought that we're undergoing, certainly here in the desert. Yes, I know, it's a desert, but we the monsoons we've been getting every year just have not been showing up as they normally would as our weather continues to change. So we're in drought, even for here. And, but we're not the only ones. It goes a, a corridor of drought all across uh, the United States. So anyway, listen, we're near the bottom of the hour. Uh, a couple of things that I want to hit you with. Go to artbell.com, my website. I'm very proud of, of this. You know, I've, I've won or been nominated for a lot of awards in my radio career. But this one, uh, I, I'm really proud of it. I'm, I'm really proud of this. Uh, I guess it was issued by the Las Vegas Weekly. Uh, Las Vegas Weekly, you know, it's paper in uh, Las Vegas. And it's a Cabbie's Choice Award. You know, all the cab drivers out there that are driving in the nighttime, the Cabbie's Choice Awards for 2002 uh, awarded me uh, Best uh, Radio Host by Las Vegas Cabbies. I've got the certificate, which I got today. I'm very proud of it. And I uh, scanned it and uh, put it on the website, so it'd be under what's new for a item. And I'm very proud of that, really, very proud. And I, I don't know why. It just there's something about this that really hit me as, oh gosh, I'm really proud of this. You know, just because all the cabbies out there, I know the cabbies in Las Vegas, and uh, if they're listening to you, why, uh, if they're voting your best, then it it means something real serious. We're going to break here at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be back to do some open lines coming right up. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM, raging to you in the nighttime from the high desert. Call 
Clark Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nine. Oh, and by the way, coming at the top of the hour... Uh, we've got a really interesting guest. His name is Donald Wolfinghoff. I, I get well, I get some names. Donald Wolfinghoff, I believe, is correct. And uh, he has written a book. Uh, he's been, in fact, 20 years writing this book. And this is the Bible. It is worldwide considered to be the Bible, I guess, of uh, the ways to save energy, energy savings. And... Oh my God! It's, in fact, if you look at my webcam picture tonight, I'm holding the uh, I'm holding the book up. It says "Easy to Use for Everyone," complete, up to date, uh, quick uh, payback. In other words, all these things you can do to save energy. Uh, and this is a pretty cool book. It's like I I've heard it's a $200 book, and I believe it. This is uh, it, it's gigantic. It's 20 years to write this. It took the the guy 20 years to write it. He's going to be on tonight. And I am very interested in this sort of thing, uh, in, ter- in terms of my own home and what I can do to save energy. So, you know, if you're interested in that, and if you're not, you better be, because we've got trouble coming in that area. Uh, go take a look at my web. Just even if you're not going to consider buying it, look, take, trust me, take a look at my webcam picture, and you will, this thing weighs about, oh man, must weigh 15 pounds, and it is monstrous. So he's been, you know, re- worldwide, this book is regarded as the Bible of how to save energy. So that'll be coming up at the top of the hour. All right, back into the night, uh, open lines this night, folks. Uh, there is just one more thing. Uh, this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, headline, scientists find new predator insects. New, this is a new insect, folks. Scientists have discovered, indeed, a new order of insects, the first in nearly a century. This is an entire new order of insects. And it's, uh, it's in Africa. Uh, they've got it in some museums now in Europe. Researchers later discovered a- an actual living population of the insects in the southwest African nation of Namibia. Uh, in fact, all of this has been uh, being reported this week in the journal Science. The insect's described as a predator that resembles a mix between a stick insect and a praying mantis uh, were placed in a new category I don't care to try and pronounce. Uh, the scientist uh, said, These creatures are some of the last witnesses of the time when Africa and America were part of the same land mass. Isn't that interesting? The uh, insects are just under an inch long. And two of the examples under study in laboratories came from tropical Africa. An additional example is found encased in amber from Europe's Baltic region. So can you imagine that? Uh, this, this insect, I guess, never went away. Or either that, or you might speculate it has come back. Either way, pretty interesting stuff, huh? Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air. Good morning. Hey, Art, this is Buddy. I'm over here in uh, 
middle of nowhere, Iowa. Okay. On a, on a uh, cell phone to boot, huh? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I was just you know, wanting to throw something out as a possibility. You know, last night y'all were talking about how things are happening more and more and more, you know, these bad things that are going on. Could that be a function of the fact that we're more and more interconnected? You know, 50 years ago... Yes, it could be. I haven't... Uh, I, I absolutely have not given up on that. There's a number of people who have that exact theory, sir, and it may... it w- could be true. Who knows? Yeah, that's all I had. I was just curious about that. All right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, th- thank you very much. Take care. I, yeah, sure it could be that an idea, a concept of something uh, evil or bad, uh, once it's uh, it's done, uh, there was a time in the world, I mean, this is a theory. It may be totally out to lunch, right? It's a theory that, that uh, a negative idea of some sort uh, becomes injected in the consciousness virtually of the world by the connectivity of the Internet. Sure, it's as good a working theory as any other for what's going on. I, I don't have any idea. What I do know is that uh, what I've said is absolutely true. There is, uh, pardon the, the plug if it's, if it's one of those, it's, it's really not. It's, it's the quickening. In every single aspect of human endeavor, um, life is quickening. And that means socially, economically, politically, from a, a weather point of view, uh, the the ecology, every aspect of human life is quickening, and um, I don't think there's any more doubt uh, about that. Do you? A wild card line, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, Art, you know, the thought of the Chinese paratrooping in to take this country is a real possibility. Well, I, you know, I hear people saying that, but... Uh, well, well, but wait, stop and think about it a second. Well, you it, too, you too. Think of the logistical nightmare. Okay, but let's make it real easy for them. If the liberals in this country could disarm Americans the way that they've disarmed the Canadians and the Australians... Ah, uh, they're not going to disarm Americans. Oh, come on. That, that's the we're goal. No, we're no more going to give up our, our guns than the man in the moon. That's the agenda, Art. I mean, they... I know it's the agenda of some, but it ain't going to happen, sir. The Second Amendment is there for good reason. Yeah, but they're getting ready to do away with it. They're trying. They're not going to do away with People it. People have to stop them. They're not going to do away with it. They're going to try and interpret it... Uh, uh, to weaken it and weaken it, but uh, even that, uh, say, look, Americans are just not going to give up their protection. That's all. I, I hope you're right. Hey, I'm with you. But, you know, that's the attack. That's the agenda. And people have to stand up and voice and say, we want our rights. We, you know, we're tired of politicians attacking our freedoms in this country every single day. If it's not one thing, it's something else. They I are know. trying to attack. They're trying to take it away. I know. I know. Um, I, I appreciate the call, sir, but uh, right now, uh, the concept of the Chinese swarming over the West Coast and moving east, you know, something to think about, I suppose, but uh, they'd be shot down like dogs. There's a lot of guns in America, don't kid yourself, and Americans are not going to give them up. I know there's always a worry about it, always a concern about it, and rightfully so. You've got to keep your eye on all the amendments, including number two, as well as number one. All the rest of them, uh, they're there for a reason. And two is there for no less of a reason than any of the others. But I, I'm, I'm not seriously worried about it because uh, people have the right to protect themselves. And uh, and they're not going to see that taken away from them. In fact, out west here, out west, uh, and in some parts of the east as well, 
The pendulum actually has gone the other way, and they're issuing carry permits, allowing uh, citizens to carry guns now, concealed uh, weapons. Now, when uh, when that first was proposed, you know, everybody said, "Oh, there's going to be going to be Dodge City. There's going to be people killing each other in the streets." Well, guess what? It hadn't happened at all. Uh, in fact, there's been almost no documented incidents that anybody even knows about in all the states where they've allowed this to happen. You know, decent, honest citizens carrying guns hasn't worked out badly at all. It's worked out very, very well and is a pretty good deterrent crime, frankly. I mean, if uh, uh, if you think you're going to walk into a restaurant uh, out here where people carry guns and just start shooting, you've got another thing coming because somebody's going to shoot back. So it's, you know, that's a natural deterrent. If you fear for your own life, uh, you're less likely to do something stupid. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Hello, Art. I'm, this is Jonathan calling from Missouri. Yes, sir. Um, I, I just wanted to add something to Art, but uh, do you still have that song, Flowers on the Wall? You used to play that one a lot. Stabler like Brothers, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, I was calling about the cloning. Okay. Uh, you know, any, as far as playing God and all that kind of stuff, I, I, don't, I think it would be a great contribution to the United States to have cloning. And how would you, how would you see it used? Well, I, I, you know, if if God is all powerful, then it don't matter what we come up with, we're not going to stop Him. So I think that this is a, this is just a a, a new thing, and, it, and it's going to bring a, a, a lot of good things in the future. Do you? You're not worried about the fact that uh, with animals that they've cloned, they've uh, had a lot of monsters so far, you know? Well, I just think if if we were playing God, that you know. If God's all-powerful, we're not going to be able to stop him, and it don't matter what we come up with. Well, let me, ask you this, let me ask you this, sir. Uh, let's imagine the lab where all of this is going on for a second, all right, wherever right. that turns out to be. Uh, if a monster is, uh, is born, yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, that's just going to happen. I mean, they're, they're not going to know right away, just like the problems with Dolly showed up later. If, if we start birthing monsters, then what would you do with the monsters? I don't know what I do, Art, but there is time. Well, wait, wait a minute. You think of I, this I poor, you think of this poor creature, uh, in a strapped in a bed or whatever uh, that we've created. Uh, would you would you kill it uh, because you made a mistake, or would you no. care, or, or would you care for it for the rest of your life, sir? I would care for it for the rest of my life. Hmm. Well, but uh, wouldn't you like to have your own clone? No. I would. There's times that I'd like to disappear from my life and just have a clone and nobody know I'm gone. <laughs> well, that's a somewhat <laughs> self-serving reason, sir, but um, okay, I'll accept that. I, uh, <laughs> just, Love you, show Art. You know, take care. Uh, sure, okay, well. Just make your clone do the work. I mean, that's that's what he's saying, right? Make your clone do the work. Yes, I know. I've considered that aspect of it, and believe me, when I've surveyed my audience... On this issue, people would accept clone um, servants when it really gets right down to it to have somebody uh, who would do the drudgery, wash the dishes uh, without complaint, be happy little camper, you know, a clone who would do nothing but uh, that kind of drudgery work, uh, get the dishes done and, gosh, wash the cars and uh, do the drudgery work, take care of all the weeds and do it all day long uh, with, a, with no complaint. In fact... It would be happy doing that. The people would just swarm to get hold of such things. And that's the truth, and that's why we're never going to stop cloning. But, boy, the, the place it's headed, you've got to worry a little bit about where it's headed.
I think. First time caller line, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I have a biblical question. I don't know if you can. Oh, help I'm not. I'm no biblical expert, so I. Probably well, you know what? I was wondering if perhaps you'd, you'd heard this before, and maybe you could help me. It has to do with Genesis chapter six. It talks about the um, uh, the sons of God coming down and taking the daughters of man as wives. Well, what is that about? Well, that's all about the Nephilim. I don't know what that is. Well, the Nephilim were cast out, and then they came down here and decided they liked Earth women, and. Pretty soon, uh, these non-human and human combinations began to have offspring. And as the story goes, uh, God got very upset about that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and caused the big flood. And the Nephilim went gurgle, gurgle, and, you know, and all the, the clones uh, went gurgle, gurgle, and uh, Noah floated. I mean, that's the way the story goes. Well, I've never heard that. God story was, God was, oh well, uh, do, do a little reading. Yeah, sure. Well, I've, I've, I've been reading and I'm like, I can't, I can't make it out. I can't, I can't see what they're trying to tell me. I wonder what, yeah, that's a good question. All right, I, I, I appreciate the call. Thank you. And even I, I know, certainly did not do it justice. It could be done, uh, precisely in how Lindsay could have done it for you last night. I'm not the guy to do that. But I mean, that's roughly, uh, the way it went, I think. Uh, they were tossed out. They came down here and messed around with our earth women and, uh, next thing you know, God's displeased. Uh, you want, you kind of have to wonder why he... Uh, now, now, consider what we're doing with, with cloning. What if God decides that this is like the Nephilim, you know, that they're, they're, they're now playing in my ballpark, and uh, he decides to have another flood or something? Not that we couldn't use the water. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hello. Hey, how you doing there, Art? I'm all right, sir. Where are you? Oh, well, unfortunately, Las Vegas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, uh, Art, as far as cloning goes. Uh, you know, I can't believe they took the kind of shot they did. Well, they, you Trump. know, perhaps they did that because, you know, Las Vegas, I mean, gets a lot of bad rap. The only, the only reason Las Vegas is where it is is because Bug, Bugsy Siegel came out right. here, put his foot down in the desert and said, we're, we're going to make it here. Right, right. But, you know, they get a little jealous because you guys got those little uh, prostitution houses that are legal. <laughs> but uh, yeah, whereas you just have uh, girls on the street. Exactly. But AR, you know, as far as cloning goes, I think basically whenever you see something such as you know just as on you know like uh, brand new on, on you know just on the verge of. Yes. Usually, I think you can just estimate just based on the fact that the military probably used it 30 years ahead of anyone else before it even came out to be used in public. And I, I find that you don't bring that up much. Well, I don't know. Well, the reason I don't bring it up is because I don't know it for sure. And right, but I mean, that's the same thing with a lot of UFO things that you do talk about. So in the future, okay, I think Okay, sir, if this helps you, if this helps you, I have speculated forever and ever that I'll bet this is being done in secret labs all over the place. Well, here's an example of something I saw on TV once. It was on a commercial television show called 321 Contact. It was on public television. Yeah. And uh, I can distinctly remember them showing a supposed, uh, I don't know, some kind of experiment, biological experiment, where they somehow mixed a cow and a, and a large pig, uh, a pig and a cow. And this thing looked absolutely phenomenal. I never saw the show repeated. It, it had like spines going down. It just looked kind of like a Tasmanian devil, but it was huge. 
Huh. And they have very small back legs. They never showed that again, and that thing made a strange noise, and it was alive and everything. Now, if you can pull those archives up and put them on your website, I'd be very amazed. I'll see what I can do. Okay? All right. All right. Bless your heart. Thank you. Take care. Um, east of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Art. Hi. Where are you, sir? Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, okay. Ray Bell. Uh, they know me as Brother Sky Blue down around world-famous Bill Street. Okay. Uh, you know, the lady called about the question about Genesis. Yes, uh-huh. Uh, the book of Genesis are, uh, is completely... Uh, parables or allegories. Yeah, but I saw, I, I basically kind of had it right about the Nephilim and Earth women and the Flood and the rest of that, right? Well, Emanuel Swedenborg's writings explain the uh, the real meanings be- behind the allegories and the parables and the stories of the book of Genesis. Well, he has an explanation. Now, uh, you see, these are allegories, so they're open to interpretation. I, I don't know. When people say, they, you know, this guy has the real true meaning. He wrote the real true meaning of the, the allegory. You know, he took his own shot, and he put it in print is what he did. That doesn't mean it's better than anybody else's. All you should do is uh, read and decide for yourself. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Mr. Bell. Good morning, Mr. Bell. <clears throat> Where are you? Salt Lake City. Okay. I have a little... I was watching Fox News report this morning, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Hollywood Squares, how they're raising money for all the women in Afghan. Yeah. And I don't know about anybody else in America, but I'm pretty concerned that the fact that uh, we're raising money for people in other countries, but we can't help our own. Well... You know, every time we give any kind of foreign aid, that's an argument. I mean, when we send money overseas, anywhere for anything, uh, you, you you really have a pretty good argument when you say, why aren't we spending it here at home? Well, there's so many women, especially single women, you know, that have been either divorced or, you know, whatever. Well, they've, they've had it pretty rough over there, sir. I'm sure you've seen oh, yeah. the, no, the thing agree. CNN is running, my God. I, I agree. So I'm, I've got nothing against helping them. You know, we're, we're, we are a rich and powerful nation that can afford to probably walk and chew gum at the same time. That means take care of our own and occasionally help out around the world as well. So, Well, that's, I guess that's just the way we are. We're the world's police. And, and well, I just, it just bothers and, and me. That we're, also, we're also the world's social worker. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> well, that, we are that. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it makes you really angry, I understand. But I guess we have some responsibility, as rich and powerful as we are, uh, to help out the, uh, the less fortunate around the world. And, and the, those women had a rough go of it, real rough. Yeah, that, that's true. Thank you, sir. You have a good evening. You're very welcome. You too. First time caller line. Uh, you're on the air. Turn your radio off, please. I understand. Turn your radio off. I understand. Okay, good. Uh, can barely hear you, but go ahead, sir. Yeah. Uh, is this our bell? <laughs> yeah. And here comes another example of the wonderful step forward for mankind of cell phones. Where are you? I'm uh, in California, but uh, I live in Denver. I'm in a truck. I'm listening on XM Radio. Uh, you know, I get better connections from uh, from across the Atlantic. But anyway, sir. I just wanted to ask uh, if you'd ever done a show on uh, uh, that, uh, oh, I'm trying to read the name here, Majestic, the book Majestic. Majestic. Have I ever done? Well, sure, yes. Thank you very much. We've done lots of shows on uh, what is said to be Majestic 12, the control behind the government, that sort of thing. 
Did, did, did you hear that connection? Did you hear that connection? <sighs> 25, 25. Maybe they'll have real telephones that are wireless and work like telephones and don't sound like that. If man is still alive, good point. If woman can survive, they may fly. Here come the clones. Charge Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies, dial 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may recharge at 1-775-727-1222 or use the wildcard line at 1-775-727-1295. To recharge on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Network. Certainly is. Top of the morning, everybody. I'm Art Bell. And tonight we're going to talk about energy and ways that you can save money, big time money. My guest, uh, Donald Wolfinghoff, uh, is one of the world's top experts on energy conservation and alternative energy sources. This is going to be very interesting. He came to Washington, D.C. In response to the oil shock of 73, remember that? He came to serve as a consultant to government and business. He, uh, his work uh, led to much of our present understanding of energy issues, such as it is. He spent 20 years, 20 years writing the Energy Efficiency Manual, the primary guidebook for energy conservation. It is used on every continent in the world. That's really something. It's the Bible of how to do it. This thing is awesome. In fact, if you'll go to my uh, website, artbell.com, and uh, just go to my uh, webcam, you'll see me holding it up. It is, uh, it's not actually, it's about 8 pounds, not 15 pounds. This book is, it's, it's, it's incredible. And so I held it up. It was so incredible, I held it up. Um, he, he presently uh, uh, serves on the ASHRAE, I guess it is, A-S-H-R-A-E, Standard 90 Committee, which writes the National Energy Conservation Standard for the U.S. and several other countries. He was an organizer and judge of the Australia Energy Awards Design Competition, the leading efficiency design competition here in the U.S. In 78, he started the formal education of energy professionals with courses at George Washington University. Don, Don Wolfinghoff uh, introduced uh, the profit center concept of managing energy costs, which is now applied around the world. He started his company. Wolfinghoff Energy Services, back in 1978, it has improved the efficiency of buildings of all kinds, including the White House. He is a professional engineer in uh, mechanical and electrical engineering, is a licensed first-grade stationary engineer, a certified general automobile mechanic, an FCC first-class broadcast engineer. Oh, my, listen to this. He is an arbitrator of the American uh, Arbitration Association. He has uh, testified as an expert witness in construction, safety, automotive, and shipbuilding issues. He received a B.S. in physics from the University of uh, uh, Louisville and an M.S. in physics from the University of Florida. He is a graduate of the U.S. Navy Engineer Officer School. He served in the U.S. Navy on several ships and was a project officer in a special unit. He builds and flies experimental aircraft as a hobby. 
This is going to be a very interesting interview. Stay right where you are. All right, uh, my guest again is Donald R. Wolfenhoff, and I hope I'm getting that uh, uh, name correct, or am I close at least, uh, Donald? You're right on target. Oh, good. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, it's very important for me to have people like you. I'm, I am very, very energy conscious, uh, I, but I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm smart about some things and really stupid about some things, uh, Don. I went out and spent a whole lot of money. And, uh, and, and got to solar panels and wind generators and I'm actually off the grid, uh, uh, entirely. Yes. Uh, but I realize and I know that with all the money I spent, I'm not going to recoup it. I'm just probably not, probably not going to recoup it. Now, if energy prices go high enough, I will. And I'm not suggesting this is what everybody should do because really it's too much money to put out. I'm intensely interested in using less power, in using more energy-efficient devices. And I, and I know my home is like a wasteland. I mean, I, I burn up the amps in here. So, well, I think it's uh, people like you who are responsible for progress, the fact that you're willing to experiment with wind and experiment with uh, solar uh, gives us uh, a baseline on what's possible and what can be done. Yeah, but we've got to make it affordable. Yes, we do. Somehow and we've got to make it affordable. And uh, is, it going to, is that going to happen? Well, let's make a clear distinction between two things that uh, are generally confused. The one is energy conservation, which we could call energy efficiency, and the other is alternative energy sources. That's right. Energy efficiency or energy conservation is very economical. Alternative energy sources, by and large, are not economical for individuals, right. but they are best applied at large scale. I think that we still uh, tend to think of uh, windmills and uh, solar and that sort of thing as being something you would put on the roof of your house. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been doing it long enough that we know that really, unless your house is in a very isolated location, that's not, that's not the place for, for a wind generator. Uh, these things have terrific economies of scale, which means that the cost of the energy they produce uh, falls dramatically the bigger the machine is. So the best place for wind energy is in big machines, meaning a couple of hundred kilowatts each, and sure. large wind farms where you have hundreds of them. All right, well, let's back up a little bit. Um, the world is quickly digging up, uh, pumping up uh, the oil from the ground, and there is going to come a day. I uh, don't know when that day is. Maybe you do. I, I ask everybody like yourself who comes on when conventional energy sources will either run out or become too expensive. Um, I'm not, I guess one will occur before the other. What do you know about that? When will we essentially use up what's economically viable? I think we have a fairly good handle on that. There is controversy about it because, of course, you don't know uh, when you're going to run out until you actually run out. <laughs> However, starting in the 1950s, a very respected man named uh, Dr. M. King Hubbard, who worked for the Geological Survey, uh, developed a predictive method for when a resource gets depleted, and that resource could be oil, petroleum, or um, buffalo chips, could be anything. Yeah. And um, uh, King Hubbard uh, basically drew a curve and said that our availability of oil is going to follow this curve. Or, I'm sorry, I said that a little bit wrong. Our production of oil is going to follow this curve. Uh, 
And when that production peak uh, is reached, when we are at the maximum production rate, we will have at that point used up half the resource that ever existed. Wow. Well, since the 1950s, uh, Hubbard uh, made predictions about when certain things would happen. For example, he predicted that the U.S. Uh, peak of production would occur in 1970. He said this back in the 50s. Everybody said, you're wrong. We have enough oil to go forever. Well, indeed, it peaked in 1970s. Uh, so you, you have very little oil production now in the United States compared to the boom times. Uh, so his, his curve has held up pretty well. And basically what it says is that by about the year 2010, and that number floats, some people say as early as 2000, other people say out by 2015, but sometime around now, between now and the next 15 years, the world will use up approximately half of all the oil and gas that ever existed. Now let me emphasize I'm talking about oil and gas not coal, not uranium, not other things. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the trouble is this. If you look at a curve of consumption of oil and gas, which are our primary energy sources at this point, you see that it started out slow and built up exponentially as automobiles were invented, as, as gas was used for home heating and so forth. So it was a rapidly rising uh, consumption. Well, we're at about the halfway point approximately now. The remaining, now we took just about one century to get to this point. Uh, it was in the late 1800s that uh, Colonel Drake first drilled for oil in Pennsylvania and then got natural gas as a nuisance product. That I, I assume that the, uh, the peak years that you spoke of would also be, probably when we look back at it historically, the cheapest years. Uh, correct. Okay. Absolutely. All right. I like to use the analogy that uh, oil is like uh, uh, water in a sponge. You start out with a sponge full of water, and then you squeeze the water out. Well, squeezing the first half of the water out of the sponge is pretty easy. Yep. But then as you want to get more and more water out of the sponge, it gets progressively harder. And I think, unfortunately, that analogy will follow through with petroleum. Um, it'll be pretty easy to squeeze the sponge until you get to the very end when abruptly it'll get much harder. Mm -hmm. um, and when will that occur? Well, we don't know, but with pretty complete certainty, I think that it's going to happen, oh, probably uh, we're going to have a severe energy. Uh, we're going to run out of oil and gas as a commodity that you can burn, certainly within this century. My guess is that uh, those of us who aren't too old will live to see it, and for sure our children will live to see it. But about, by the end about, of this century, oil and gas what, will be gone. What about the, I mean, right now it's headed back up. What about the price of gas in our lifetimes? What do we have to look forward to in the next, say, 40 years, uh, gas price-wise? Well, I don't think that you can predict that. Because until, while there's still a lot of oil in the sponge... Only so, the oil companies know for sure, right? Well, they don't know either. The problem is that the price of gas is a function of uh, temporary fluctuations. For example, we just had a coup in Venezuela, That's which right. is our third largest oil supplier. That's right. If that coup had gone a different way, oil prices would have spiked up. If uh -huh. it had gone a different way, the prices would have stayed down. Or perhaps if we attack Iraq with a full-on, you know, half million men, something or another, uh, that's probably going to affect oil prices. It certainly will. 
And so oil will be a function of, oil prices will be a function of politics more than it will be a function of geology. Well, in that case, we should all be thankful the Middle East is so stable, huh? <laughs> yes, right. Um, the Middle East, uh, of course, is where most of the remaining oil uh, remains. If you if you look at, um, I have some figures in front of me right here. If you look at where the remaining oil mostly resides, uh -huh. it's in Abu Dhabi, Iraq, uh -huh. uh, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. All our best friends. Yeah, all our best friends. Okay. And a uh, very bad place to have to put an aircraft carrier if you've got everybody shooting at you. Mm -hmm. Well. Uh... There's going to be a sh there's going to be a shooting. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, we have plans. I'm sure of it now. They're talking about it to take out Saddam Hussein, and that could spark you know the entire region really. It will. Uh, no question about it. And what the effect uh, of oil prices will be, we don't know. Well, I remember the 70s. I remember the gas lines. I, you know, I I lived through that. That's right. God, it was awful. And I guess that's what started you on all this, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, uh, that occurred in 1973. That was, uh, for our younger members of your audience, what sparked that was uh, basically uh, something very similar today. It was the Arab nations, the Arab oil suppliers, being very angry with the United States about their policy toward Israel. Yep. And uh, what they decided to do was to uh, clamp down on oil supply, which had never been done before. And I'm in uh, the northern suburbs of Washington, D.C., in the Maryland suburbs. Huh. And uh, people couldn't get to work. And they had uh, various uh, silly rationing schemes um, oh, yes. and uh, long gas lines. Well, the trouble now is it isn't 1973 any longer. I'm still uh, sitting in the same place that I was then. But now uh, the suburbs have moved out 40 miles. And where people back in those days would commute uh, perhaps four miles to work, now they may commute as much as 40 miles to work. Mm -hmm. If we had the same disruption of energy supply, we'd completely shut us down. Um, what would it do to the economy? I mean, completely shut us down. Uh, sort of lay out what that would do to our economic situation. Well, um, visualize a situation in which you can't, well, you don't have to drive to work. You're at work right now. No, but most people do. But most people do. Visualize a situation in which people can't get into their vehicles and go to work, and and that's it. Well, that's that's uh, Armageddon, uh, economic it, Armageddon. It would be very yeah. catastrophic. And uh, so what we have to do is before is anticipate that uh, even if politics doesn't uh, bring an end to our available conventional energy sources, uh, geology will. Well, you, you watch what's going on with Saudi Arabia, for example, which the United States paints as a great ally, but I'll tell you something, uh, they're no great friends of ours, and uh, frankly, uh, they're probably as ultimately committed to the, uh, uh, the extinction of Israel, in my opinion, as any nation there, they just they're they're a little more sophisticated about it. And uh, uh, if you look very closely at the relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia right now, they stink. Well, I think that's true, but it almost uh, in the long term doesn't much matter what the motivations are uh, politically. Uh, Not in the long term, no. They will. Uh, they have basically one commodity to sell, and that's petroleum. Right. And uh, they are in debt. Their economy is not in a great shape, like any uh, uh, 
uh, windfall economy, which is all the economies that uh, derive their income primarily from uh, petroleum, uh, they have to keep selling it. Uh, they, they can't stop selling it. So my concern is not so much about uh, political instability or ideology. My concern is what happens when those who have the oil have pretty well used it up and it's gone from the, uh, from the crust of the earth. And that, I think, is going to happen as a practical matter sometime about mid-century. <laughs> that's really pretty soon. Yes, it is. Uh, pretty soon. I mean, that's our children's, uh, if not ours, and certainly our children's direct problem. Yes. And, I mean, what kind of world is that going to be? Are we ready for it? Do we, do we as far as you know, have alternative energy sources, uh, be it... I don't know, uh, fuel cells or whatever all is out there right now that's going to suddenly jump up and take the place of petroleum? Well, we have lots of options. The problem is they aren't going to jump up. We have to make them. Uh, we have to make that transition ourselves. And the problem is that it will take energy to save energy. Uh, the time to make the transition to uh, conservation and to alternative energy sources, which are two primary options, is right now because if you're going to, for example, make a photovoltaic array to uh, collect the sun's energy, it takes energy to make the photovoltaic array. You bet it does. And it takes energy to make the wind generator. Uh, we have other sources. We have plenty of coal, for example. Um, well, I say for example, it's, it's actually one of a kind. We've got plenty of coal. Yeah. But it's almost as if the man upstairs is uh, testing us to see how wise we are. If, in fact, the global warming issue is as serious as most scientists are saying, we can't use it. Well, we can all see the weather changes going on now. It's, it appears that we can. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's the hand of man or just a cycle uh, which may be sort of pushed along by the hand of man. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, burning coal in the pall over the cities now is bad enough Uh so to turn to coal, uh, coal uh, from oil uh, would, would worsen that situation for sure. Certainly would, because coal is the primary, is the worst in terms of um, the carbon dioxide problem, which is the main greenhouse gas. Because, of course, uh, coal, in terms of its combustion energy, is mostly carbon. Sure. So you burn it, you get carbon dioxide. Um, the, there's conjecture as to how severe the problem is, but then if you ask the question, is the problem of global warming real, I can answer it this way for you. Um, go to uh, Las Vegas, which you've been talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. uh, stand uh, there downtown, mm -hmm. and then go 30 miles east into the desert. Yep, that's right. And see and, what the temperature and look, is. And look back at the city. And uh, uh, Just looking back at the city will do it. Uh, listen, we're at the bottom of the hour. Uh, hold tight just a moment. We'll be right back. I'm Art Bell. Call Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. 
To recharge on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nine. Yeah, and everyday people is really what it's all about. I mean... The larger global picture of our running out of energy, you know, there's no, simply no question about it. We're going to run out of energy. And it's going to get real expensive before we do run out of energy. Real expensive. There's going to be wars and all kinds of things fought about it. But in the meantime, um, you know, I'd really kind of like to concentrate on everyday people. By that I mean, how's your power bill every month, huh? Uh, gas prices are once again soaring, and uh, your electric bill every month is getting out of control. It certainly is here and everywhere else. It's getting out of control, and people are getting shocked. I mean, it's a real shock to open that bill sometimes. Now, there are ways that you can stop that and uh, at, at least, uh, you know, cut it uh, way, way, way down. And uh, that's what I hope we can talk about some tonight, because... I know the global crisis, but, you know, eyes glaze over a little bit, and people go, uh, you know, right, it's going to be awful. GR, poor kids. Uh, in, in the meantime, uh, you've got to pay a big electric bill, and it's going to get a lot bigger, and a big gas bill and all the rest of it. And there are ways right now that you can change that. And that's what this book really is all about, Energy Efficiency Manual. I want to know how to change that now. And even though I'm perhaps stupidly off the grid, <laughs> I know how much it costs. Uh, and it's nice to be off the grid. Still, I know that I'm an energy pig. And I've got computers everywhere and lights. And uh, uh, I've got a washer and a dryer that's 10 years old and a refrigerator that's just as old. And, you know, I, I know there are new ways to do things. And you just have no idea how much energy you're using. When, when your wife goes and turns on that dryer... Uh, I mean, there's uh, there's 20, 30, 40 amps uh, suddenly going out the door real quick. I mean, big-time electricity. There are ways to change things in your home right now and cut your electric bill way down, and so you can be ahead of the game. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, my guest is uh, Donald Wolfinghoff, and he'll be right back. Earlier uh, today, I went out to my solar wind room, you know, where the electronic controls are, and I, I look, and one, I've got a pair of dual trace inverters, uh, really nice big gigantic inverters, and one's drawing 39 amps and the other's drawing 37. And I asked my wife, what, what are we doing? And she said, well, I'm drying some clothes. Oh, my God, that uses a lot of electricity. I, I'm really very interested in what we can all do in our homes to cut our electric bills, uh, on. Well, there's lots of things we can do. Um, fortunately, let's, uh, it's a good news, bad news uh, situation. The good news is that um, you probably can reduce energy consumption in buildings. That's both residential and commercial buildings to about 10 to 20 percent on average of what we presently use. Oh, my God. Yeah. You mean... Down 10 or 20 percent, or do you mean down to 10 or 20 percent of down present? Down to 10 or 20 percent. Holy moly. Yeah. That's real serious. That's real serious. Now, good news, bad news. The good news is it doesn't take a lot of advanced technology, in fact, no advanced technology to do that. The bad news is you can do it only in new houses. If you have an existing house, you can oh. probably cut your electricity and gas uh, bill or oil bill 
down to perhaps a third in an extremely favorable case, maybe half of what you're currently doing. Well, but there's nothing wrong with that. If, I, if my electric bill, uh, if I had one, went to half, that would be really good. Yes, it would. Really good. Half or even a third? Oh, my. That's gigantic. And that's for existing homes. All right. Well, let's, let's bore in on that one then because... And then we'll talk about new homes, but not everybody's, uh, most people don't have one. They've got whatever they got right now. Okay. So, let's, uh, let's back away and have a little perspective, first of all. Had uh, someone asked me recently, should I save energy by unplugging my appliances? And the answer is no. Don't bother with stuff like that. What we need to start out with is a, is a sense of perspective. The, the biggest energy users in your house and in apartments are heating and cooling. So that's where you want to concentrate your effort. Right. The second biggest things, although a distant second, is refrigeration and water heating. And then distant third behind those are lighting, cooking, laundry, dishwashing, electronics. You mentioned that your wife, um, when she turns on the um, clothes dryer, yeah. has a heck of an electric draw. Oh, yeah. However, that's for a relatively short period of time. That's, sure. for, the, that's for the length of time that, that she's washing your laundry, that's which true. is you know a couple of minutes every week. Mm. Uh, whereas cooling and heating goes on forever. All right, we'll try and try this exercise. We're near Death Valley. Right. Uh, summertime temperatures, uh, summer, summer, excuse me, summertime temperatures go to sometimes 117, 18 degrees during the worst part of the high summer here. Yep. So uh, you can't live uh, without cooling. You have, you must, you must have cooling. Absolutely. And the key to uh, the key to cooling is insulation and shading. Those those two things more than anything else. Now, if you've got an existing house, what can you do? Right. Uh, insulate the attic. Uh, insulation is is extremely important. And uh, most houses, you can upgrade the, the attic insulation. Unfortunately, wall insulation, uh, you, your walls may already be insulated. Well, they've also got this new thing where they punch a hole in the wall and they fill it up with foam. I, I just heard about it. It's a doggone thing. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. Don't go there. No, huh? Uh, no, because imagine what that foam is doing on the inside. Foaming? Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's having trouble getting down in there because your wall is full of obstruction, so you're getting a very partial fill. The other thing is I want to talk about uh, foam insulation. Uh, in my opinion, uh, doesn't belong in houses if it's really? any part of a house can burn. Really? Uh, yeah, I hear so many people touting. In fact, a lot of people out here in the desert are using this foam insulation uh, because it has such high insulation properties, but you're saying it's, it's trouble? Uh, it is, because when foam burns, and all foam insulation will burn if you get it up to its ignition temperature, Right. it gives off copious fumes, uh, kill you real quick. Oh. Um, now, I have the only place I have foam insulation in my home, which I built, is uh, around the, the exterior of the foundation where it's buried under soil. It's never going to catch fire. Right. But foam, in my opinion, has no business being in a wall or being in a roof because if, wow. the, if the house catches fire, the foam, first of all, liquefies. Um, it flows. So it will flow right out of the wall, through the baseboards, into your house, ignite. And um, human beings, when they're sleeping, uh, unfortunately, are not awakened by fire. They tend to sleep through it until it kills them. Yeah. So uh, I don't, uh, and people, by the way, get mad at me for saying that, and it's controversial. And it's controversial, of course, because if you walk around a new housing development, uh, you will see that it's very common to use foam for exterior sheathing on yeah. houses, yeah, which I'm I think is that. bad for several reasons. 
But uh, I don't like uh, the idea of uh, foam in a, in a house that can burn. Now, you have foam, for example, in aircraft. Because it's light, it's rigid, it does have a high R value. In fact, foam is, is one of those temptations that you've got to stay away from because it's wonderful in all respects, uh, except that it'll kill you. Yeah, except it'll kill you. Uh, uh, well, that's I've, that's brand new to me. Uh, right. So okay, what about the roof? Uh, you uh, said insulation. Nice thing about uh, attics is that typically you can pile the stuff as high in your attic as you want to. You've got lots of space, so exploit that. And uh, probably if I were out in Death Valley, uh, I'd want to have um, oh heck uh, maybe 20, 30 inches of insulation in the attic. Stuff's cheap. It would be it would be glass or mineral fiber insulation. Right. Uh, I would stay away from cellulose insulation because rats and vermin love it. Um, but plain, ordinary glass and mineral fiber insulation that's been around forever, that's the ticket. How much need new technology? What, what kind of R rating can you end up with? Oh, I would, it's the stuff uh, doesn't have a particularly high R value for per inch, so you need lots of inches. Right. So figure about R3 per inch. So if you... If you want to get up to R30, uh, ten inches of it, or or uh, okay, that that much. I get the idea. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing, uh, if you're out there in a hot climate, uh, make sure that your attic is very well vented, because the heat is driven into your house by a temperature difference. Right. Now, if the temperature inside your attic is 150 degrees and it can get that hot if it's badly vented. Uh, that's a big uh, driver to drive the heat down through the insulation of the house. So uh, one thing that we do not do in conventional construction practice nearly well enough is venting the attics. And indeed, if I were um, building a residential house I, it, that had an attic, uh, I would completely open the ends of the attics. In other words, they would be decorative louvers. Sure. Uh, rather than your typical one foot by foot and a half vent, which is way too small. The other thing is that that is now becoming very common, and it's good, is that every attic should have a ridge vent. Uh, that used to be rare. Now now you'll get a ridge vent just about every time you get your uh, shingles replaced on your roof. Mm-hmm. Make sure that ridge vent is installed properly. Now, the hot air in the attic comes out of the ridge vent. It flows upward. Well, it isn't going to do any good unless air can come in somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And in the typical attic, uh, the air has got to come in uh, from the ends. So... Open up the the ends of the attic. You mean to the to the the body of the house? Uh, no, no, to the outside. Just to the outside. Yeah. But yeah. what about the inflow uh, of of air to the attic? How, it how should it? be free. Uh, in other words, your roof should be essentially a tent, so that uh, it all it's doing is keeping sunlight off the insulation. Okay. You want as as free a breathing into the attic as possible. You want to reduce the temperature in there. That's really interesting. Most people go the other way and want to seal it up. Well, you would do that in a cold climate, although you're asking for trouble with moisture problems if you do that. An attic should always be vented. Uh, it should be vented modestly if you're in Minnesota. If you're in Death Valley, the ends of the gables should be wide open. All right. Uh, extremely interesting. Now, I want to ask you about something else that's really been on my mind. Someone told me that no matter where you are, even in the hottest climate uh, where I am here, uh, that if you dig down in the ground uh, to a certain level, there's going to be a constant temperature down there, and a pretty cool one at that compared to the above-ground temperature. And 
that this is true everywhere under all circumstances. If you dig down X number of feet, I'm sure you'll tell me, you, you get to this cooler temperature, and you, can, you could put a heat exchange device uh, in the earth and really get away with something. Is that true? Yes, that's the principle of the geothermal heat pump. It isn't, uh, it isn't quite as simple as just putting a heat exchanger down there, but if you go down about 12 feet... Anywhere in the United States. 12 feet, okay. 12 feet, roughly. Right. The temperature's going to be about 55 degrees. It doesn't matter whether you're in Minnesota or Florida or where you are. It'll vary by a couple of degrees. But not much. But not much. And it'll be about 55 degrees. Now, um, we're going to have to get a little bit technical here, but a very popular thing these days is what's called a ground source heat pump. And um, where we have to get technical is to mention that the energy efficiency of an air conditioner or a heat pump, and a heat pump is simply an air conditioner running in reverse, uh, is is proportional to the difference in temperature between the outside, inversely proportional to the temperature difference between the inside and the outside. Okay, so uh, just to make it simple for everybody, basically, how does this work? It pumps air. Uh, down through this exchanger, through this 55-degree area, and cools the air and brings it back? Is that the rough idea? Mm, usually not. Uh, the problem is that the air, that the, that the 55 degrees isn't cool enough for cooling. Okay. You could do that. The trouble is <clears throat> that what would happen is very quickly, as you're circulating warm air down through that heat exchanger uh, down in the ground, you're going to warm up the ground. The ground acts as an insulator. Right. So that, that technique would work for about 12 hours, and then it would cease to be any good for you anymore. What you have to do, there are huh. two things you can do. One is you can lay down a heat exchanger field that may take, oh, a fraction of an acre, or about an acre for a typical house, Yes. in which you lay pipes in the ground horizontally, or alternatively, you can, and that takes a lot of surface area. It does isn't any good for heavily populated areas. The other way you do it is you drive the heat exchanger straight down in a well, typically three to five hundred feet deep, and you have a series of these these wells, wow. and then you run a heat pump off of that. Now the problem with that is obvious: it's expensive. Yeah. The, the horizontal fields. Um, that uh, whole business of the ground source heat pump is a great idea. Unfortunately, it's typical of a lot of things. Great in concept, valid concept, but in execution, it tends not to work very well. The problem is that there's too much opportunity for the contractor to cheat. Huh. If you go down 12 feet, you get 55 degrees. Right. But you can't cut a 12-foot trench three inches wide into the ground. It'll collapse. Right. There's no practical way to do that. Right. So what happens is the contractor cheats. He buries it three feet in the ground or just below the frost line. Well, you might as well not bother if you're going to do that. Right. You've got to get down to that point. You have to get all the way down there. All right. But assuming you've got an honest contractor, I guess my question is, could this work? If you had the better part of an acre to do this and you could do it horizontally, which would not be too prohibitively expensive, uh, would it work? Oh, yeah, and it's done. How well would it work? Um, you, can't, you can't bury it 12 feet deep. It's not practical to do that. So the best they typically do is four to six feet. It works moderately well. And the problem is that, that even with an acre 
of, of heat transfer. If you're in a place like Nevada where you're cooling all the time, right. what you're doing is sucking heat out of the ground, putting it, uh, sucking heat out of the house and putting it into the ground. That's correct. After a couple of years, you warm up the field. So with the passage of time, the efficiency of the system gets less and less and less until ultimately you're just as well off with a window air conditioner. Oh, jeez. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, now, then, what's, what's a mother going to do then? Uh... What you're going to do is instead of spending a lot of energy to cool an inefficient house, you're going to make your house efficient. efficient. And uh, you do that with insulation. And let me uh, just so, mention some other things you so, can do to reduce your cooling loads. Okay, so, but, but you're not against the concept of compressors and air conditioners in general. You just say, don't make them work so hard. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. you got to have, at some point, you're going to have to have some air conditioning unit to, to suck the heat out of the house. But what you want to do, most of the heat that you're sucking out of the house in, in a warm state is, is heat that isn't generated inside the house. It just leaked in from the outside. So don't let as much leak in from the outside. And the way right. you prevent that is, is insulation. The other thing that's very important in warm clients is shading of the windows and shading of the whole house. Now, it's tough out on the desert, but trees are, are just wonderful things. And uh, the only problem with trees is they, they take a long time to grow. But if you have a house that is surrounded by trees, and in fact, if you go in the Midwest, uh, what you will see is your farmhouse out on the prairie, and the prairie is dead flat, and there's the farmhouse, and the farmhouse is totally surrounded by this little forest. Absolutely. That the family planted there. And yep. they did that because they like to be cool in summer. And how much difference uh, does that make to the energy uh, usage in the house? Lots. Um uh, I'm going to, and, and we don't have good numbers on this. The Energy Efficiency Manual has a little section on tree shading um, and explains the, the pros and cons and how much it will save you. If you're out on the prairie and the wind is not blowing, uh, you'll save a lot. You might have a 15-degree temperature difference, which is enough to, to, to uh, cut your cooling cost to a small fraction of what it would have been. You make a good point about the wind, though. If it's blowing, then obviously... That's right. All bets are off. Yeah. So, um, but shading is is an excellent thing, and it's but it's very dependent on your on your geography. If you can't plant trees, uh, shade your windows with awnings, or if you can't afford awnings, put in uh, good reflective roller shades, and uh, they are um, remarkably effective. You know, put in a five dollar roller shade in your in your window, and um, that'll keep the heat from coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh we we use uh, solar screens here, and uh, we use double pane glass, and we have uh, uh, you know these mini blinds behind that, right? Uh, which seems to help. It just seems to help a lot, right? And the the important concept um, is generally try to keep the shading as far outside as possible, because once the heat comes in from the sunlight, uh, you have a tough time getting it back out. Now, all, all the things you, you're saying about uh, hot areas like mine, what, what about the, the cooler areas where they're concerned about uh, heating because, uh, my God, heating oil, the price of heating oil is going to go just like gasoline and everything else, right? Here's the good news. The very same insulation that uh, saves you money for cooling also saves you money for heating. So in, either way, the answer is basically the same, huh? Absolutely. And if you're starting with a clean slate, if you're going to have a house built, let, let's take the ideal case. You, 
you can afford to design your own house. And, and A brand new house. Hold, hold that thought uh, during the break. We're, we're at the top of the hour. We're talking about energy. We're talking about how you can save big time money. This is something you're going to want to listen to. Dark Bell in the Kingdom of Nye. From west of the Rockies, dial 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. Or use the wild card line at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Network. It certainly is. We're talking about energy and how to save money on your bill right now. Donald Wolfinghoff is my guest. He's written a Bible on this, and if you doubt that, go take a look at my my uh, a webcam picture. I'm holding a, a picture of his book. It's like a $200 book. Anyway, that's what I've heard. We'll ask. Maybe it isn't. The network says it's a $200 book, and I, I believe it. It's gigantic. And it's used on every continent around the world with regard to energy. So uh, if you want the Bible, here it is, you know, on this subject. And believe me, a lot of people are going to begin to get religion on this subject very shortly. I'm Art Bell. Don't move. Once again, uh, back to the man who wrote the Bible on energy, Don uh, Wolfinghoff. Uh, Don, welcome back. Thank you. All right, so um, whether it's cold uh, and you want heat or whether it's uh, hot and you want cool, either way, number one for everybody out there is insulation. That's right. What else? What else can we do? You said it, you started to say, if, you know, I was going to build a new house. Well, I said earlier that you could um, build a house that would use 10 to 20% of conventional energy consumption. So let's do it. And we'll notice that none of the following involves new technology. Uh, as you said, insulation, that's the, that's the single most important thing you can do. Now, about 20 years ago, there was a concept out called the super-insulated house, and I just hated that term because there was nothing new about it. It's just that instead of having walls that are 2x4s, right. uh, you have walls that are 2x10 or 2x12 or whatever. And when I built my house, instead of using 2x4s, I used 2x8s, and it just worked wonderfully. Uh, so we want... Much more insulation everywhere on all four sides, going down in the foundation and in the and in the ceiling. Insulation is cheap; it won't cost much to do that. Next thing is we want to heavily shade the building to reduce the cooling load, and we're going to do that with a with a conventional roof that is extremely well vented, as we were discussing earlier. Uh-huh. Essentially, the roof is going to be nothing more than a sunshade. And something to keep the rain off. It's a, it's just a parasol. So we keep, we have a heavily vented roof and then we want to, in a warm climate such as yours, make the roof highly reflective on top. So we don't absorb the solar heat. We just bounce it right off. Right. The other thing that we do is we're very careful about where we put glass because just as insulation is good from an energy standpoint, glass, glass. is bad. Glass. And, is bad. and there's no way around that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, back in the 70s, we were being promised uh, that, that new high R-value windows would be developed. It never happened. How come? Um, well, they didn't figure out how to do it. They were promising magic they couldn't deliver. So the window today, the so-called super window of today, in fact, 
has an R value that, that isn't even twice as good as it was 20 years ago. Oh. So we want to minimize our, um, our glass area. So put glass in where you want a view. And where you don't want a view, don't put glass in. Um, shading is extremely important, particularly over the glass. And the ways to shade is to use deep roof overhangs, particularly on the south side. Right. Um, a, and uh, if you're going to be on the east side, uh, awnings uh, are very, uh, very effective. Uh, you don't, basically, you don't want direct sunlight ever to hit any glass. Now, people say, gee, that's extreme. No, it isn't. You can, you can make that happen. Yes, you can. Uh, Just a nice, long, southern-type porch. That's, that's what right. I put in here. That'll do it. That's right. And, in fact, you mentioned southern-type porches. I'll, I'll digress a moment because people know how to build, uh, for, for warm climates, people know how to build uh, low-energy houses. We spend our winters down in uh, Key West, or we spend about a month down there every year. And Key West is warm. It's the uh, southernmost part of the continental United States. And humid. And humid. And uh, just walking around Key West, fortunately, they still have the old architecture. And the secret is, as you said, deep porches everywhere, yep. heavily vented attics, and trees everywhere. So your typical beautiful Key West house won't ever have any direct sunlight hitting it. And they were designed to operate without air conditioning, and indeed, they can be quite comfortable. They also use, uh, which isn't practical in the rest of the United States, I'll just mention this as a footnote, um, they also uh, use free ventilation from the outside so that uh, there are a lot of Key West houses where, where two of the walls on opposite sides are just louvers. But uh, that's not practical for most of the rest of the country. Okay, to continue. Then the next thing that we want to do is to install heating and cooling systems <clears throat> that allow for separate heating and cooling of each room. Uh, uh -huh. Biggest source of energy waste uh, in heating is the standard forced air furnace, where you have a furnace in the basement and it distributes heat through ducts to every room in the house. Well, you right. don't live in every room at the house. You only That's live true. in one room at a time. That's right. So just heat or cool one room at a time. And uh, you say, well, gee, isn't that uncomfortable and primitive? No, because if you insulate the house real well, uh, none of the spaces are ever going to get uh, uncomfortably uh, hot or cold. Too radical either way. Right. And so my ideal house would have baseboard radiation, which is totally quiet, totally conventional, with a separate circuit and thermostat for each room for heating. For cooling... Uh, you want a separate, separate cooling system subdivided as much as you can. I have uh, these uh, wonderful split system air conditioning units that uh, just started to become popular about 15 years ago. And uh, sadly, uh, the best ones are Japanese. I don't know why we can't make those units in this country. Yeah, I'm just about to install one. They're really interesting. Yeah, they're, and they're wonderful. We have one... Um, where the condensing unit, which is the noisy part that has the compressor and the fan, although it ought to be, it ought to be said they're getting very quiet compared to the way they were. Oh, they're they're very quiet on an absolute basis. When we're at one end of our deck, which is which is 30 feet long, we can't hear the condenser running on the other end. Yeah, there you go. And so those are super. And so subdivide the heating and cooling. Then, next item is simply select high efficiency models of all your appliances. Okay, that's. I understand you can really make a big difference that way. I mean, a refrigerator like the one I have made 10 years ago 
uh, as compared to what is available today. Uh, how much difference is there in energy? Uh, let's not say, let's not compare it to a 10-year-ago refrigerator. Let's compare it to a 30-year-ago refrigerator, okay. maybe a third as much. A third. Oh, yeah. A third. And, and guess what the main efficiency difference is? What? Insulation. A refrigerator is just a box. Uh, well, of course, that's right, isn't it? It's just an insulated box. So so they, they really uh, made all that change to t- take it down to a third from that long ago just by insulating it properly. Mostly insulation and some improvements in the, uh, some improvements in the compressor system, but the base compressor hadn't changed at all. And, in fact, the basic insulation hadn't changed at all. They just so, used a reasonable amount of it. So the answer, again, is insulation. Yes, indeed. Magic okay. stuff. All right. Uh, what about washers and dryers and that kind of stuff? Every single appliance that you have in your house, including your, your computer on your desk, comes yes. in a high-efficiency version, and there are ratings for those. You can go on the Internet, or you can call various consumer bureaus, or you can subscribe to consumer reports, and you every appliance that you buy for your house, whether it's a water heater or a, a washing machine, whatever, a, a refrigerator, freezer, stove, Everything comes in a high-efficiency version these days. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, there are mandatory labeling laws. You walk into the department store, you go to the appliance department, and there are these big yellow labels on them, Mm. and uh, just read those labels. And uh, it's remarkably easy to do. That has probably been the biggest success story um, since uh, the energy crisis began in 1973. All right, all right. Personal question then. I, I, again, I've got things that are about 10 years old. That's how old this house is. A little better than 10 years, actually. Uh, and so, my refrigerator, my washer, my dryer. These sorts. Of, would it be economically feasible for me at this point to go out and purchase new, high energy, energy efficient uh, appliances? Oh, in fact, another question. Uh, for example, a dryer. I have a wonderful source of uh, of propane uh, gas here, and I've considered uh, the fact that we could probably use a dryer using propane gas instead of electricity. Would I save doing that? Uh, Yes, you would if it were propane. However, let's say you're not saving energy, you're saving cost. The the propane uh, dryer has an advantage simply because um, it's uh, it's a cheaper energy source than electricity is. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so that's that's an economic thing, not not an energy. Well, thing. that's okay. I'm I'm willing to be uh, if I can save money. Okay, that's, right. That's a way to do it. I'm, I'm going to react like most people react. You'd be better off with a propane dryer. Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, but bear in mind uh, that that drying, clothes drying, laundry is not one of your big energy users in the house. Right. Well. Um, okay, hot water usage, though, um, is, and, and what about these, I mean, people going around selling these things that you put on your roof that uh, heat your hot water uh, and at least, uh, to some degree, uh, lessen the amount of electricity you might use to get the water to temperature or either that or eliminate it altogether, do they really work? Oh, they work. Um, and indeed, if you remember uh, back about 20 years ago, uh, the federal government was had a heavy uh, subsidy for those in your income taxes. You could deduct the cost of uh, putting those things on. Can we still do that? Uh, no, that uh, that program has gone away. And well, unfortunately, that's one of the really uh, appliance efficiency ratings are are the good news. The bad news is how badly botched that whole solar program was. 
Most of the systems that were installed under that program have since gone away. And the reason isn't that there's anything wrong with the technology. It's perfectly valid and it's perfectly simple. Uh, the problem is they would do dumb stuff like uh, having the collectors facing north. Or if you had a house that was heavily shaded with trees, right. you can't put one of those things on the roof, and they would do that. Um, so, And they took a little bit of maintenance, and they tended to be installed wrong. So that was a microcosm of the major problem that we have with energy efficiency, which is really dumb application of good technology. All right. Uh, the payback period on that, by the way, is 10 to 20 years, 10 depending to, on what your local uh, energy costs okay. are. Uh, as I told you at the beginning of the program, I'm off the grid. Uh, mm -hmm. when, when the power around here goes out, people in my neighborhood are out walking around wondering why in the hell I've got power up here. Uh, they can see the lights up here, and they're going, you know, why's you got power? Well, I've got power because I spent a ton of money to make sure I have power. Uh, is it a good idea or not a good idea? Are you behind the concept of going off grid or or not? How do you feel about that? I feel don't worry that, about my feelings. Uh, I feel that going off the grid is essentially a hobby. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, the, if you if you can afford it, that's in the same game as having a Lexus instead of driving a Chevrolet. Yeah, that's right. Now you could also have emergency power by going down to the hardware store and buying a two hundred dollar generator. Um, well, the, well, the, now wait a minute. Now hold on. Okay. Not really. Uh, you're an engineer. You know that a $200 generator isn't going to provide you uh, uh, even a fraction of the power that, that you need to run your home. And, and if you doubt that, uh, go look at the amount of energy you're actually using. A $200 generator wouldn't do that. You know that. Not if you're heavily electrical with heating things, oh. electric heat, electric dryer. Most people are fairly heavily electrical, frankly. I mean, if you, and if you doubt that, just go turn off the breaker outside your house, and you, you're generally living in a tomb. Yeah. Yeah, dark Here, tomb. Here's the issue on uh, going off the grid. Uh, alternative energy sources, what do you have, wind or photovoltaic? Yes. Both? Yes. Okay. Uh, both of those technologies, which are the leading candidates for, the, for being our future uh, free energy sources, are by far most economical in huge scale. Uh, you know that uh, over in next state, over California, you have these huge wind farms. That's the economical way to do <clears throat> wind energy. Well, I just, I'm lucky. I live in an area where we have both lots of wind and lots of sun. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of Sundays we have is astronomical here, and so it's a particularly good area to do that sort of thing, which is one of the reasons I went ahead. How noisy do you find your, um, your wind generators? They're not, uh, the, the first ones I had, uh, they were horrible. I mean, oh, my God, you'd get 30 or 40 mile an hour winds out there, and it sounded like the devil was coming down on the neighborhood. I, I, I scared people in the neighborhood. Now I have uh, new composite blades mm -hmm. uh, and a very different kind of generator, and these new composite blades are just uh, as quiet as you will. The other ones would go supersonic, and when they went supersonic, Oh, my God, what a noise. I mean, people would come out of their homes and go, oh, my God, what's that? So these newer composite blades are very quiet is, is the answer. So they're not bothering the neighbors? No, absolutely not. No. Okay, great. No. Yeah. As I said earlier, people like yourself are the ones who, who create progress because you're willing to be the pioneer. Yeah. Um, but still, um, I think the, the truth of the matter is that, that the future of alternative energy isn't highly centralized. 
sources. Now, for that, you need a grid. So what's going to happen is the grid itself isn't going to go away. What's going to go away is the fossil fuel power plant. Yeah. And so the grid is simply a means of distribution of energy. Nuclear is not doing so well either at the moment. Uh, nuclear is a wild card. Yeah. We don't know whether it's going to go up or whether it's go down. Well, as difficult as nuclear was uh, before 911, uh, now it's even more difficult because obviously there's going to have to be additional security. Everything is a money thing, and security costs money. Uh, so now nuclear plants will be even more expensive. So uh, as controversial as they were before, they're even worse now. I agree entirely. Uh. Uh, the, and in fact, when if we're looking at our big resource picture as we were at the beginning of the program, people say, well, gee, uh, we've got lots of coal, don't we also have lots of uranium? And no, we don't. Uh, uranium is, uh, is not a terribly plentiful uh, commodity, and the wrong people have it. It's in Russia and South Africa. And uh, then they say, well, how about breeder reactors? And uh, breeder reactors, what they do is they take the, <clears throat> the fraction of uranium that is not fissionable, which is about 99% of it, and turn it into plutonium. But plutonium is stuff you don't want to have floating around because terrorists can make bombs out of plutonium, whereas they cannot make bombs out of uranium very easily. Right. Um, so, um, yes, I agree with you. 9-11 didn't help uh, the future of, um, nuclear of, of nuclear at all. Um, you asked about going on the grid. I think the grid will remain, uh, but, but what pumps energy into the grid will change. Yeah, I actually asked about going off the grid. But, I, I mean, uh, you're saying that uh, w- whatever it is that puts energy on the grid is going to change. What is that going to be? Uh, wind, uh, photovoltaic, hydro. Um, hydro, of course, we have. Now, there's good news and bad news about hydro. Uh, the bad news is that our hydro capacity in the United States is actually declining because the big dams uh, like uh, Hoover Dam near you and the other big power dams are silting up. And so we're looking at a, a hundred years from now of those dams operating at only a small fraction of their current capacity. The good news is Canada. Canada has vast hydro resources, haven't been tapped yet, so uh, the Canadians are going to be making their money a century from now selling us their hydropower. All right. Well, I like Canadians. Uh, hold on. Don, we'll be right back. Uh, Canadians, uh, you're our good friends up there up north, right? You wouldn't have any objection to sending us copious amounts of hydroelectric power, now would you, eh? (laughs) We do. We're we're consumers down here. The Canadians, well, they can take advantage of that. Maybe maybe the Canadians are going to be the uh, uh, future uh, uh, Arabs. To America, and you will rule. I'm Art Bell, and this is Ghost to Ghost AM. Don't touch that dial. Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. 
This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. Well, I have with me tonight the man who's written the Bible on energy savings. It's called Energy Efficiency Manual. It's about $200 gigantic. In fact, I've got to ask about that price, see if that's really right. It's a, it's a monster of a book. You can see it at artbell.com. I'm holding it up on my webcam. When the bullet is going. You know, I've had a lot of energy experts on in the past. I'm going to ask Don what I've asked a lot of the others about hydrogen fuel cells. Now, I had one man who came on and said uh, hydrogen fuel cells are, the, are going to be the salvation of our energy needs, brothers and sisters. They will save our butts. Then I had somebody else come on and say, what a bunch of baloney. Hydrogen fuel cells are going to take uh, petroleum products to burn to make. And so it's not going to save our butts, and I don't know what the real answer is. We'll try Don on this one in a moment. <laughs> Keith in uh, Toronto, Ontario says, uh, Hey, Art, no effing way. Your president never remembers to mention us. Plus, our anthem gets booed at every hockey game I've seen. No power for you. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, welcome back, Don. Thanks. There's our answer from Canada. Yeah, I guess, huh? Uh, listen, uh, I have had people on uh, who have sung the praises for hours on end here of hydrogen fuel cells. They are the answer. They will save our butts. Others have come on and said, what a total bunch of garbage. They're not going to save our butts. Ultimately, to make hydrogen fuel cells, you need lots of power. I just like to make uh, solar cells or whatever all else, and they're not going to save our butts. It's not the long-term answer. What do you say? Well, the hydrogen economy, so to speak, is a is a misunderstood concept. First of all, okay. hydrogen is not an energy source. Unlike uh, solar energy or wind or coal or oil or uranium or whatever, there is no hydrogen resource in nature. Hydrogen is a basically a transmission medium or a storage medium. Now, where's the hydrogen come from? The two places you can get it. Uh, there's uh, obviously uh, the two uh, hydrogen atoms in every water molecule. Right. So you, so you can water. expend energy, uh, any kind of energy, nuclear energy, wind energy, whatever, to break down water and create hydrogen, right. free hydrogen. Or you can take a fossil fuel, such as methane, which is one <clears throat> atom of carbon and four atoms of hydrogen, and you can split out the hydrogen atoms. Right. Uh, in, but in either case, does hydrogen function as an energy source? It's, uh, it's they say, something you have to make. Okay, so it's a storage medium. It's not an, an energy source in and, in and of itself. That is correct. Now, why are we interested in doing that? The answer primarily is fuel cells. Uh, fuel cells are a device um, that produces... Uh, electricity directly from fuel at a substantially higher efficiency than do most electric generators. For example, a diesel engine or a steam turbine produces uh, electricity with an efficiency of more or less 30%. Uh, fuel cells, uh, the best ones, can do it at about 40%, and for theoretical reasons, they offer uh, even better efficiency in the future. So the whole thing that drives the hydrogen economy is the possibility of using fuel cells as an efficient source of electricity. Good idea, bad idea? Uh, it's kind of a wash because the efficiency advantage that you have in the fuel cell you lose in the production of the hydrogen. Oh, I see. I mentioned that hydrogen is a transmission and storage medium. Well, it's really kind of troublesome in both capacities. 
uh, I remember back in the 70s before there was a Department of Energy, we were working with their predecessor agency on that. trouble with hydrogen is it's a very small molecule. So if you compress it and put it in a steel tank, it, le it leaks out through the walls of the steel tank over time, and it embrittles the steel hmm. at the same time. So you go to all sorts of contortions to try to contain uh, hydrogen for whatever you want to use it for. And I remember the most bizarre thing was a metal matrix called lanthanum pentanickel. And this was basically a molecular sponge that would soak up and, and hold hydrogen. You can make canisters out of it. And then instead of your car being powered by gasoline, it would be powered by a canister of, of hydrogen. Right. And the advantage, of course, is that if you burn hydrogen, what's the combustion product? It's water. So... At the back at the end of the process, you get no pollution. Unfortunately, at the front end of the process, you have the pollution that it takes to make the hydrogen. Um, so it's, um, it's unpredictable. One of the things that's clear about technology is you can never predict the future. For example, I remember that when I was a kid, Popular Mechanics was saying in 20 years all our cars will be powered by gas turbines. Well, that never happened because gas turbines are horribly inefficient. What will be the future of fuel cells of the hydrogen economy? I don't know right now. However, if you run the numbers, it's a wash. It's a wash. Uh, so you're basically then agreeing with my one guest. In other words, other fuel sources have to be used to create this. It's not a panacea within itself. Well, there is no free hydrogen source in nature. All right. I want to read you a bit of an article here from abcnews.com that I pulled that I find fascinating. Get your comments on at least this, all right? Uh, listen very carefully. It's entitled, it's from abcnews.com. Maybe I'll get it up on the website. It's entitled Moon Power. Scientists propose harnessing solar energy from the moon. It's not that he particularly wants an energy shortage. He's just excited about the alternative drawing solar energy from the moon. Oil in Alaska is nothing compared to what you'd get from the moon, says Criswell, a physicist at the University of Houston Institute for Space Systems, who's been promoting the idea steadily now for 20 years. This kind of energy, he says, would be available as long as the sun shines and the moon's up there. Goes on, plugging into the moon. In this month's issue of The Industrial Physicist, Chris Well lays out his plan to build solar panels and microtransmitters from lunar materials and begin beaming the solar energy to Earth. Solar panels would convert the sun's raised energy and transmit it through buried wires to microwave generators. The generators would then convert that energy into harmless microwave beams, controversial there, which would be aimed at collecting stations on Earth. At Earth, they'd be converted back to electricity. The 2040 lunar power bases, uh, 2040, would be stationed at the east and west edges of the moon so that one or the other would always be sunlit as the moon travels around the Earth. Earth orbiting satellites and mirrors could also help aim the beam toward the terrestrial antennas. None of the moon-based solar units, he says, would be visible with a naked eye from Earth. It would be like having an electric cord stretched across the solar system, he said. Uh, com comments? Uh? Well, that's not as goofy as it sounds. Uh, but people may wonder, why would you bother with all that? And here's the reason. Uh, sunlight is probably going to be uh, one of our major ultimate energy sources in the future if we do it uh, soon enough to sort of keep our civilization alive. Trouble with sunlight is it's a very diffuse energy source. It's about uh, 200 BTUs per square foot uh, per hour, which isn't much energy. 
And so I mentioned earlier that most of the solar collectors, um, well, I mentioned earlier that solar collectors that you put on your roof have a payback period of uh, 20 to uh, uh, roughly 20 years uh, mm-hmm. on average. And, gee, that's a long time. Yep. How come? Yep. Well, it isn't there's anything wrong with the technology. The problem is that the amount of energy that that collector can collect is very small per square foot or per square meter or whatever. Mm -hmm. So people have said the obvious, well, gee, um, the thing to do is to have huge, um, cheap collectors that can then focus sunlight uh, on something like a photovoltaic array or or a water heater or what have you. And... um, But the trouble is that collector has to be cheap. And sunlight is such a weak energy source that even the cost of mirrors, just plain, ordinary, old, cheap mirrors, and the steel structures you'd have to mount them on becomes prohibitive. So then people said, ah, but what if we put them out in space? In space, there is no gravity, so we don't need massive structures. So the original idea was, the predecessor to the moon idea, was the idea that we'll put huge orbiting reflectors out in space. Uh, The only reason for doing that is that we think we can make them cheaper per square foot than we could on Earth because they don't need a structure. Absolutely. Uh, That ran into some problems, and so the the notion of installing the collectors on the moon was an alternative to having them as uh, orbiting in space. So actually... Uh, the moon idea is about a halfway compromise between orbiting uh, reflectors and and just collecting sunlight on Earth directly and skipping all that. But is it is it a good idea overall or, or not? My my guess is the economics won't work out. There's another problem also. Um, let's say that you just reflect sunlight and don't convert it into microwaves or anything. So you got this big array up in orbit and it's uh, punching a tremendous number of kilowatts down through the atmosphere to a point on Earth. Microwaving, probably. Well, it could you could convert it into microwave energy right. if you wanted to. Right. Uh, or you could just run the sunlight down straight in the form of light. The trouble is, what if, and that's supposed to focus on a point on Earth, what happens if that thing starts to slide and uh, instead uh, focuses on Los Angeles? Uh, well, then you burn up people like ants with a magnifying glass. And that's correct. And so, so I, I, you know, you are, I, I've got to tell you, you're getting some comments on my, uh, I get these comments on a computer as we go through the program, and, and some people are regarding you as kind of anti-technology. You know, almost everything we're running by you here sort of doesn't work. Well, uh, the, is, that, is that an unfair assessment? Are you, would you say of yourself you're kind of anti-technology? Oh, not at all. Um, in fact, if you look at my book, the thing is, you know, 1,500 pages of technology, but it's proven technology. Okay, so you're just uh, you're uh, a realist. Um, I'm an engineer. Well, uh, okay, that's being a realist in my opinion. Yes. In, in other words, you're looking at everything from an economic perspective and seeing what's economically viable and what's not. That's correct. It's got to work. If you build the bridge, the bridge is not allowed to fall down. If you build a building, the building is not allowed to burn, um, and it has to be economical. And so I'm looking at things through the standpoint of an engineer. Now, there's another strong prejudice I have, and, and your people who are sending you the messages are seeing my prejudice. Uh, my prejudice is that 
we making a major societal mistake now by continually looking to the future? There's a thing in psychology called displacement behavior. Displacement behavior means that you go and do something that's less important as a way of avoiding something that's more important. What's important for our society right now is to immediately convert to efficiency and alternative energy sources. Um, but instead of doing that, we, we use a sort of a displacement behavior, and we are continually fascinated by stuff that is in the future. Okay, well, uh, let's say we embark on an immediate program. That means going back to government subsidies for alternative energy, uh, heavy government subsidies, so people will find it financially attractive to do it, even if it's not really economically attractive. Our government can make it economically attractive. We've done that before. I've had very long conversations about this, for example, with Dennis Hayes, who's the um, the, the head of the Earth Day uh, program, a yes. very, very brilliant man. Uh, he is uh, very much in favor of a massive program to say, we are going to spend $1 million on photovoltaics. And you? And I'm thinking that's probably a fairly good idea. Um, it's probably better spent there than some of the other places. By the way, did you mean a million or a billion? Billion. Billion. I thought, billion. I thought perhaps you did. I may, have mis I may have misspoken. I meant billion with a B. A million won't get you very far. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's merit. Now, a billion dollars is one power plant. Yeah, and I know. I, it's not that much. It's, uh, not, the, it's not that much. In the overall scheme of things, what, how much would that do? Well, the Dennis Hayes' notion, which I think is perfectly valid, is that what you want to do is to drive down the cost of the photovoltaic or the wind or whatever. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, you want to drive down the price curve by volume. And uh, in photovoltaics, there is still, I think, considerable opportunity for, for driving down the, um, the price on photovoltaics. Wind, I'm not so sure. But wind is starting to be economical on its merits already. Yeah, on a scale, it's like three cents a, a kilowatt hour, isn't it? That's correct. Provided that you put the wind generators where there is, in fact, wind. wind. <laughs> yeah. um, unfortunately, right now, about 70% of all wind, genera uh, wind generator installations are put in under mandates from public utility commissions, typically who are folks that uh, have very little technical grounding. And you end up with silly things like putting in um, wind generators in central Pennsylvania where there is no wind. And, um, so what happens is, and this is where Dennis Hayes and I disagree, um, and it's, it's worth noting that there is disagreement among people about this, um, I say, Dennis, the, sing the, the largest single thing that's holding us back in our going to alternative energy is this continual uh, doing of stuff that's not economical, making stupid mistakes. We can't afford stupid mistakes anymore. We could afford it 30 years ago when we were in the exploratory stage. But wind energy, for example, isn't exploratory anymore. It's here. And as you were saying, with your wind generator, we've even got them to the point where the noise doesn't drive people out of the neighborhood. That's absolutely true. And so we're ready to get serious about this. Now, we can't be just uh, treating this as the trouble is we take valid technology and we treat it as if it were snake oil, which makes people think, gee, that's snake oil, and therefore we shouldn't support that. Well, it, 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 yeah, but it could still be described as sort of a present economic snake oil uh, in terms of you're going out to buy it and saving money. 
Um, that's true. And at this point, I think there is merit in a federal subsidy uh, for a limited federal subsidy, a billion dollars here and there for things like trying to drive down uh, price of photovoltaic. Okay. Well, the question is, how how far would how much would it do if you took a billion dollars or even a few billion? and applied it to subsidies and started putting up uh, wind and solar everywhere or in, in many places where it's useful, um, how much difference would it make? It would make the difference that when the crunch comes, we would have the infrastructure to know how to put those things in place and we would know how much it would cost and we would know how to do it because we had done it successfully. Okay, so, uh, why are we not doing it? Uh, economics, primarily. And the other, the other reason is what I mentioned a moment ago, is we, we tend to do things in the area of alternative energy in such a dumb way that among intelligent people it discredits it, uh, like putting windmills where there is no wind. The other thing is there needs to be a clear distinction between alternative energy, which is very important, but is somewhat in the future, and energy conservation, which is right now. And energy conservation requires no subsidies at all. Energy conservation uh, pays for itself, and it generally pays for itself quickly. And in fact, uh, my book, which weighs eight and a half pounds, as you have mentioned, and has 1,500 pages, yes. there's nothing in there that won't pay off now. By the way, is your book $200? It's $199.95, well, so it's a, nickel, it's a nickel less than that. $200. <laughs> right. Uh, so the homeowner doesn't want to buy it. The homeowner wants to go to the local library branch and say, please order this book and put it on your shelf. There you go. Uh, well, I sure appreciate my copy. My God, what a book. You, uh, you, this 20 years, huh? 20 years. Yeah, I started it and uh, made the decision to do it in 1980, and it was finally published in the year 2000. And it's used on every continent um, yep. in the world? Yeah, we know where they're sold, and, and they're, they're all over the world. And it's been accepted. It is now, in fact, what it was originally intended to be. It is the primary reference in energy efficiency. And it's, uh, it's being put to use. In other words, uh, you, you are able to look at places where your suggestions and ideas have been implemented and are working? I know where we're. I know where we're selling the book, which is, as I say, all over the earth. Yeah, but what about implementation of of what's in it? Well, it, uh, as I say, it was published in the year 2000. So um, I'm still, you know, it would be nice to get feedback from people, and I invite people who have the book to uh, get back to me and tell me what they've done with it. All right, hold tight. We're at the top of the hour. We'll be right back from the high desert. I'm Art Bell, and this. Is Coast to Coast AM. This energy thing, it's some controversy, huh? I've been where the eagle flies, rode his wings across autumn skies, kissed the sun, touched the moon. All right, once again, uh, here is Donald Wolfinghoff. Uh, Donald, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Okay, well, we've gee, we've been uh, all over the place. I I understand you uh, you build experimental airplanes as a hobby. Yep, sure do. Really, what do you build? Well, right now I'm working on a uh, two-place um, lightweight plane. It'll come out to be about uh, 440 pounds. It's based on uh, it's based on a fairly standard design called a, uh, a Challenger. Um, 
there's actually a very uh, widespread uh, hobby of building experimental airplanes. Uh, the Experimental Aircraft Association has uh, many members. I just came back from their meeting in uh, Lakeland, and in fact, uh, an interesting um, factoid is that over half of all the aircraft built in the United States are built by home builders. Now, these aren't the big ones, but... Uh, but they do account for more than half of total aircraft registrations. Well, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, I had no idea that was true. Yes. A lot of experimental planes also have a habit of crashing, though, right? Well, no. The uh, no. safety record on experimentals is uh, very good, the reason being that the person who builds them really doesn't want to die. Well, no, of course not. And uh, the uh, But there's a message about uh, experimental aircraft. You, you can't make mistakes if you want to survive. And I think that relates to um, energy and alternative uh, energy efficiency and alternative energy sources. Uh, you have to know the engineering. You have to avoid dubious concepts, and you have to build it carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the message I've been trying to get across, not that I don't like technology. I love technology just like I love airplanes, but I want them to work. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't count in energy. It's got to work Boy, or do it I, doesn't well, save energy. I, I so agree with that. I mean... Uh, you, we're going to hear them this hour. Uh, there are going to be a million people coming on saying, free energy, I know, free energy, Tesla stuff, it's out there, it's hidden, it's secret. You get that all the time, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. And? Well, um, I tend not to believe that the oil companies um, have squirreled away the carburetor that will make a car run on water. I, I tend I, to doubt I, I, that. I, I tend to doubt that notion. <laughs> well, what about uh, some of the newer concepts uh, being explored in zero point, that sort of thing? Um, you... Zero point energy at this point in time. Let me answer that on two levels. Uh, first of all, as you've as you've heard me uh, say repeatedly, uh, I'm interested in stuff we can do to protect our civilization right, right now. now. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, and zero point energy at this point in time is is a very conjectural. Concept. It is, yes. Um, Zero-point energy, uh, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, I studied uh, physics before I became an engineer. And basically, zero-point energy uh, takes off on what appears to be true, that empty space isn't really empty. Right. If, you, if you get deeply into the theory, uh, for example, you can create uh, matter out of nothing. You can take a, an electron and... Um, a positron and um, and make them out of empty space. But of course, the fact that you can do that shows the space wasn't empty. Mm -hmm. There was some energy there, and um, so there is conjecture that you can uh, tap into that zero point energy. And indeed, there has been an experiment that I think still is a little bit dubious, but it seems to show that you can create an extremely slight force. Uh, between some closely spaced metal plates. That is correct. Uh, because you have less uh, energy between the plates than you do on the outside of the plates, which tends to push the plates together. Yeah, you have a differential. Uh, right, precisely. Uh, but uh, That's not point, ready to power cities. Uh, that isn't ready to power. That's not ready for prime time. Well, I, I appreciate your... Uh pragmatic uh, approach to this and I, I'm kind of the same way and uh, that doesn't make me anti-technology either I just I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in what's true and what's BS and there's an awful lot of BS out there right now um, and, and we need things we can do right now what, what's your position on uh, 
drilling up in Anwar. I mean, while we all, I, I hope most of us agree that we've got to start down the alternative energy road quickly, we also have short-term needs uh, between now and when we can get enough alter alternative energy in place. Uh, so one possible source is Anwar. I think that as as a as a political issue rather than as an energy issue, it's stupid because if you're going to be uh, in a world where you need negotiable bargaining chips, you're better off having a big oil reservoir than having nothing and being naked to the world. So you're saying your, leave it in the ground for now. Leave it in the ground. I have no doubt that humanity will not respond in time, and they will dig oil out of every pore of the Earth's surface eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But let's not do that right away. And I think this notion of, of hastening up to Alaska and sucking oil out of Anwar is about on a par with a man crawling across the desert with his last canteen and saying to him, open that canteen and drink it as fast as you can. Yeah. I think that's yeah. dumb. So uh, you're not against eventually pulling that oil uh, from the ground, but right now uh, continue to, to import. You're, you're not necessarily against the level of import right now. It's a danger on the one hand, right? Well, it's a matter of we don't really have a big choice. Uh, at this point in time, frankly, I'd rather be dissipating Saudi Arabia's oil than dissipating our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that point of view, too, and that, that does make sense. I, I'd like to take some calls. Would you mind? Yep. All right, here we go. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air uh, with Don. Hello, Don. And Hi there. Yes, sir. Um, I was going to ask you something about Tesla, and you kind of put the kibosh on that. But um, since you have a physics background in that, and I know that on several of the uh, shuttle missions that they were trailing cables behind it, oh, yes. uh -huh. and they were producing electricity, from that. In fact, a lot more than they thought they were going to. Exactly, until the cable broke. But um, my question is is whether or not that technology could be transferred here to Earth. Sure. A, uh, a cable you have an advantage over me in that I know nothing about that. All right. Uh, on one of the uh, shuttle missions, Don, uh, they trailed a cable uh, sort of up into the... Uh, uh, a tether, they called it. Uh, you may recall the tether. And they, right. they trailed that down into uh, sort of the upper lighter atmosphere, I think that far down, and they generated so damn much electricity that it broke at the junction point to the shuttle. Uh, all the breakers went. The, the cable actually burned through. It was very interesting. Uh, motion, in other words, motion around the Earth, obviously. Uh, for example, if you put, uh, you're a first-class uh, FCC license, right? Right. Uh, so am I. If you put up a big antenna with lots of bare wire and a windstorm comes along, oh, boy, do you generate a lot of electricity in that windstorm. It comes right down the wire, and it'll draw an inch-long arc uh, to a ground. Right. So that, that kind of theory, I think. Uh, the, uh, I'm, I have to confess that that is one of many things that I don't know about. Okay. Um, west of the Rockies, uh, you are on the air with uh, Donald Wolfinghoff. Hi. Hi. Where are you, sir? Me? Yes, you. I'm sorry. I'm up in uh, California. Okay. Hanging upside down, listening to my CC radio. Okay. Listen, uh, have you ever heard of Reflect Text? It's like um, aluminum-coated bubble wrap. It's almost like mylar with bubbles in between it. Yeah, it's a form of insulation. 
Yeah, it's supposed to block out 99% of radiant heat. How would you use it? Have you ever used it before? Sure, it's a, it's a very common uh, form of insulation. Heat is uh, really transferred in, in two ways, by, by radiation and by conduction. Uh, we also say convection, but that's, that's a derivative process. And what, uh, what that insulation is is really a composite that protects both against uh, radiant heat transfer and, and the bubble wrap is just a form of, is just a form of conductive insulation. How would, uh, you, yeah. how would you use it? Would you put it like on the on the roof or on the on the ceiling of the, of that building on the inside of the attic on the upper part or the lower part? Well, I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use it in a house because it's a plastic material and uh, it, it it deteriorates over time. One of the philosophies that I have about building, whether it's residential or commercial buildings is that whatever you put in that building should either last as long as the building is going to last or be very easily replaceable. Well, and ins insulation ought to last as long as the building, and, and that is relatively short-lived stuff. I've flame-tested it, and it doesn't burn or anything, and it seems like if it didn't have any UV hit in it, it would last a long, long time. But I do agree with you with urethane. I've worked with urethane foams and yacht construction and mold building, and it's terribly dangerous stuff, but I didn't realize Reflectix was a... Not a good. Uh... I, do, I cannot speak to that trade name, but there are many people who manufacture that kind of product. You're a yacht builder. I used to build yachts and race yachts, yeah, ah. for quite a few years. So I appreciate your experience with uh, airplanes and light light construction and so forth. It's uh, it's fascinating. But yeah, plastics are uh, plastics have a lot of downside too when it comes to actually working with the material. But I guess that was my question. I really appreciate it, and thanks for uh, for being here. You bet. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call, sir, and uh, take care. I guess when you get right down to the engineering of uh, building something, you begin to learn a lot, and that would uh, certainly be true of uh, light experimental aircraft, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. doesn't count if it doesn't work right. <laughs> First time caller line, you're on the air with Don. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yeah, I'm calling. I'm uh, Southern California, uh, calling San Bernardino. Okay. And uh, we were discussing, or I heard Don, this is extremely interesting. Uh, Don, you're a real top lad. <laughs> I enjoy your program. Now, you were speaking of wind generation. Yes. Now, out here in the uh, Old Palm Springs area, uh, the reason they put those things in originally was to get uh, a big tax. There was a big tax incentive for people with money to put them in, and they would get a big tax write-off. Right. So they came in, they put them in, and they got the tax right off, and they walked off and left them. That's why you see some of them dumped out there in the desert. Nothing, just uh, a propeller or some, some some of the stuff is gone. They tried to give it to Southern California Edison. I worked for Edison for quite a number of years at the time all this stuff went in. And it just was not economical to uh, to generate things. It cost more a kilowatt to, uh, to generate power with wind. Now well, the... Uh, well, that was then, though. Well, I don't know, but I know that the state, state of mind with the federal government, I don't know, but somebody uh, required Edison, PG&E, and uh, the other utilities that before they could buy generation. Now, they had their own generation at that time. That was 4D regulation. But they said if you get down to where you have to buy power, you have to buy the wind generation first. 
Yeah, that was the California Public Utilities Commission. Yeah, and it that's was a very, very common story, and that's that's a very interesting little uh, window into history that you've given us. That that is correct, and uh, and it proves a couple points. Uh, one is that if your art, if your economics are artificial, you better sustain it forever, or people will walk away from it. Oh yes. <laughs> the other thing is that those early generation wind generators were basically too small. And they weren't very well engineered. So in that valley, where which presently has, which is currently the largest concentration of wind energy in the world, uh, you have what you always have. You have uh, new units and you have old units, and the new units are supplanting the old ones, and and uh, the old ones just continue to uh, uh, to sit there. Well, that's 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 the fact. Now I know a lot of the other ones are much larger. The new material that's on the yes. hills. Yeah, they've gone to much. They've found much larger sizes uh, as being uh, as being economical. I don't know whether the utilities are required to buy wind generation first, but uh, now as they were, but before it was a it was a total disaster because uh, utilities were forced to buy it. The rate they had to charge the customer. The customer had to eat it all. Uh, yeah, as I said, about 70% at the present time, about 70% of all wind generation in the United States is the result of a mandate, not not the result of uh, economic analysis. And you're not against the concept of uh, additional mandates, reinstating them and uh, beginning to move again, because we're not moving right now. Uh, that's correct. The mandates are a, um, they're a two-edged sword. On the one hand, you don't want to be telling people to do stuff that doesn't make economic sense. On the other hand, what I would be happiest if the government were to say, look, this is an experiment. It's a development project, so we're going to pay for it as a development project and uh, treat it that way. And since it's a development project, we're going to stick with it as long as these generators uh, continue to make sense and we haven't yet built better ones. Uh, I'm... I'm not happy about uh, trying to make uh, to, to hide the economics. I think the economics should be visible. I agree with you. Um, what about the Bush energy plan as it is now? It, it looks like he's shifted to hydrogen, and uh, of course Anwar. And uh, how do you how do you grade the Bush energy plan right now? Um, it's cosmetic. The uh, he has an energy plan because he was criticized for not having one. Yeah, well, that's um, the so he ginned up an energy plan. In fact, I have a copy on my desk right here and have looked through it. Um, basically, the plan <clears throat> uh, is oil driven uh, because I think uh, Bush and the Bush family are oil men. And <clears throat> Dick Cheney, uh, the vice president, uh, used to be chairman of Halliburton, which is the brains of the petroleum industry. Uh, they're the people who do all the high-tech stuff in actually finding the oil and, and increasing uh, well capacity and, and stuff like that. So between the president and the vice president, you've got this tremendous concentration of oil um, interest, which is not to say it's a bad interest. It's just what those guys know. Yeah. Uh, the plan uh, seriously underestimates the potential of conservation, as I said earlier, in the buildings sector, which is roughly more, which is slightly more than one third of our total energy consumption, you can probably, uh, with uh, good construction, reduce um, uh, energy consumption to about uh, 10 to 20 percent of what it currently is if you do it right. Um, and that isn't recognized at all. In addition, the Bush Energy Plan 
uh, lacks an emphasis on achieving efficiency now. It continues to call for uh, developments that are in the future. Well, then why aren't you in front of a Senate subcommittee somewhere, huh? Well, I've been slightly in contact with uh, Congress, but uh, oh, I'm not sufficiently a star in their eyes that they uh, they call me to testify much. All right, Don, hold on. Uh, in many uh, eyes out there, you're a star. I'm one of them. Uh, this is a pragmatist, good pragmatist we've got on the air with us this morning, and I appreciate it. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. Good morning. It's got to work or it's no good. On the east side of Chicago. In the Kingdom of Nye, from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nine. Oh, that'd be me, all right. A creature of the night. No question about it. That's me. Anyway, we'll get back to uh, uh, Don. Uh, Don, actually, it's Wolfinghoff. W-U-L-F-I-N-G-H-O-F-F. Pronounced Wolfinghoff. And if you want to see his book, which is considered to be the energy Bible for the world, worldwide, actually, uh, you can see me holding a copy of it on my webcam, and you can, of course, follow tonight's guest material to, uh, no doubt, Amazon.com and other places where you can actually get the book. Somebody suggested, look, those who can afford it, go buy it, uh, build your house, and then donate it to your local library. Not a bad idea, actually. You know, I think here's a question, a, a big overall question that I think I'm interested in. If we are going to be uh, running out of energy as the wet sponge is squeezed harder and harder, uh, moving into the next 40 or 50 years, then there is an earlier line that uh, we need to talk about. In other words, there is a sort of a uh, point of no return. Uh, you, you remember that old that that movie, right? Whatever it was called. <laughs> great movie, you get uh, over halfway across the Pacific and you a little light comes on in the cockpit, it's a point of no return, and uh, you've got no choice, you've got to go forward uh, to Tokyo, uh, you can't go back to San Francisco, if you do, you're going to go into the ocean, so that's like the point of no return, so at some point between now and when uh, we're squeezing so hard, we're not getting much out of the, uh, the oil sponge anymore, so, somewhere between now and then there's going to be like a point of no re- return, Where, when do you think that'll be? That's unpredictable, and um, excuse me, just a second. That's um, that's unpredictable. Uh, a coup in some government somewhere uh, could set off a chain that gives us a continuing series of shocks. I don't think that we'll just hit the wall at one particular point. Well, uh, I'm referring to if we don't get started on uh, alternative energies, there is going to be a point where. Uh, we're going to have an economic train wreck. Uh, that answer is we have to start on conservation. There are two things, conservation and alternative energy. We need to start on conservation yesterday. Um, 
the time is right now. Uh, the government, for example, is failing to set an example with its own buildings. Uh, we have a national energy code, and uh, we've had one uh, since 1992 requiring uh, certain energy standards be met. And that code isn't being enforced at all. Uh, we need to do that. Uh, with respect to alternative energy sources, uh, which we've spoken more about really than we've spoken about conservation, um, I think we need to make that transition uh, openly and as soon as possible. Now, wind energy, we're actually ahead of photovoltaic because, as the last caller mentioned, uh, we have the huge wind farms in Southern California, which is a logical place to put them. So we've got already a good example of how to tap into wind energy, although we've got a lot of bad examples scattered around the rest of the country, and I wish we didn't have those bad examples. Photovoltaic uh, strikes me as being something worth considerable investment, uh, as we mentioned before. Uh, the government, instead of building yet another Navajo power plant out on the desert, should spend that amount of money and make a photovoltaic plant. Uh, so that needs to happen right away. So in answer to your question, when should we begin right now? Well, actually, my question was, where is that point of no return? Now, obviously, you couldn't answer that precisely, and I understand that, but somewhere between now and when it gets either too expensive or there's too little oil left, there is going to be that point where if we haven't proceeded, as you suggest we need to do right now, it's going to be too late, and we're going to have an ec economic train wreck, a big-time one. The the best answer I can give you is that it's going to occur sometime between tomorrow morning and the year 2050. <laughs> and I know you'd like a more firm answer. Now, something we have to understand, there's quite a dispute um, among two camps. Uh, you have the one camp, uh, which you might call the Julian Simon camp, the economist Julian Simon, who says, no need to worry. We will continue to adapt, and the cavalry will always arrive in the nick of time because the market will respond to need. You have a different camp, uh, which we might call the, um, oh, shucks, I forget his name, but uh, the Paul Ehrlich camp, who's been predicting doom and gloom uh, for a long time, and he's been proven wrong. So people say, well, gee, uh, Julian Simon has been proven right. Paul Ehrlich has been proven wrong, uh -huh. so we don't need to worry. The fact is they're both right. Um, there is tremendous elasticity in the energy market. Um, if prices rose or scarcities occurred, uh, we would conserve. There's a certain amount of, of conserving ability right now that we have. We wouldn't uh, drive as much. We would be more careful about turning off lights, that sort of thing. Uh, we wouldn't leave the windows open when we air-condition the house. That... Flexibility is maybe eh, somewhere around 10 to 20 percent of our current energy consumption, uh -huh. I would say. Um, but beyond that, we have to make serious changes. We can no longer, starting now, build buildings the way that we used to. We just can't do that anymore. Um, now, when will the crunch come? Yep. Unpredictable. The big. I understand it could come early with a coup or with uh, you know shut off of the spigot from the, uh, the Middle East, whatever. But the wild card uh, is the third world. You throw the wild card away for a second. Let's assume, which it won't, that everything goes smoothly and we simply continue to consume at present levels, mm -hmm. and we don't 
uh, move ahead with alternative energy uh, encouragement, uh, then then you can sort of predict an economic point where all of a sudden it's a disaster. I don't think so. I I, I think that the Julian Simon faction is correct in that. Uh, you can continue squeezing the sponge. Energy won't suddenly become absent. It'll become more expensive. Yeah, it its, price, its price will rise, and well, people well. will respond to that rise in price. What 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 I am concerned about is is that our ability to respond, if we don't start doing things right, won't be there. Well, we won't be well, able to respond. Okay, fine. We, we we have the 70s. It was a terrible crisis. Long gas lines. Uh, all of a sudden, Japanese come along with small cars, energy efficient cars, compared to what we had been driving. Right. Then it all loosened up again, and now we've got big cars again, and uh, big big uh, low mileage uh, type cars. Uh, you know, that eight, ten, twelve miles per gallon. They're out there. <laughs> And uh, we're allowing them to be out there again, and we're kind of getting loose on the regulations that we said we were going to impose about gas mileage and all the rest of it. So it's like we don't react except to crisis. Uh, that is correct, and that's my big concern. Um, I wish that we would do what is already required by law, which is to build our buildings uh, in accordance with the energy codes that already exist throughout the United States. All right, uh, we've got a lot of people who want to talk to you. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with uh, Don. Hello. Yeah, uh, this is James from Washington. Yes, James. Uh, I, I love your show, Art. Thank uh, you. Don, I'd like yeah. to get back to the, uh, to the conservation issue. I work in the um, uh, energy conservation field with uh, state low-income um, energy programs. Right. And one of the things coming from private industry into the business I am now um, I noticed that what I was doing when I was building the houses is totally different from what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I see that needs to happen is that we need to take that energy code and introduce it into our, our building codes so that way they're one and the same. That it is in the building codes, actually. I can... Um, uh, I, I happen to sit on the committee that writes the energy code for the United States, and here's, here's how it works. Uh, in 1992, uh, Congress passed a law um, that requires every jurisdiction in the United States to include energy efficiency in its building codes, and if it doesn't have a building code, to, to have one that, if nothing else, includes energy efficiency. So there is no city, town, or county or state in the United States that does not have an energy code. By law, an energy code exists everywhere within the United States. The problem is that with um, the exception of very few jurisdictions, it's not enforced. Right, exactly. Uh, and I guess that's more to my point. Huh. And one of the things that you were talking about earlier, that we need to build our houses and, and do the insulation and, and so on and so forth, and I don't know if this is a factor that you just didn't get into, or uh, but it is indoor air quality, especially when we start adding insulation into the homes, uh, where that's actually sealing them tighter. Yep. And we need to, in, in turn, get that air exchange um, a quarter per hour, depending on you know the size of the building. Man, that's a very good point. As you insulate, you you also insulate against uh, airflow and. 
uh, air quality inside tends to deteriorate, Don? Uh, yeah, but I think that that is pretty much of a red herring. Uh, first of all, insulation uh, doesn't influence uh, airflow. Uh, weather stripping and, and the tightness of the building affects that. Uh, as a generality, talking about residential houses, not commercial buildings, I defy anybody to build a house so tight that you would actually have an indoor air quality problem, provided that the furnace in the kitchen is properly vented. If that's done, um, you have such a low occupant density in most residential houses, I don't think you have an indoor air quality problem. Now, you can always get uh, ventilation into a house by cracking a window open a little bit. Or, if you want to go high-tech, you can uh, get a heat exchanger, which is now a, a, an off-the-shelf item, where the uh, incoming air uh, picks up the heat of the outgoing air, and uh, you ventilate that way. So indoor air quality, uh, sadly, has been linked to energy conservation. I believe it's a false link. Inaccurately, okay. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air uh, with Don. Hello. Hi. Hello. Yes, hello. Hello. Yes, proceed. Me? You. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, this is Don you got on the phone there with you? Yes. Okay, Uh I'm just curious here because you're talking about energy, and this is the first time I've gotten through ever, but um, have you ever heard of the magnetic generator they got going now? Uh, well, a, all generators a, are magnetic to some extent. Well, they've got a magnetic generator right now that they're bringing out. Uh, I think the close of this, it, uh, they gave. Uh, they had to have 1.6 million people to uh, get this thing passed. Yeah, I'm so, oh, okay. So, caller, hold on. I'm sure you've seen the ads, uh, Don. Yeah. Uh, haven't you? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, well, really? You haven't? Uh, they've got uh, these ads out saying uh, that you invest. How much is it, caller? Uh, well, it was $9. First, it was $10. They brought it down to $9 for the first 1.6 million people. And then uh, now they're giving it to them free and because they're, they're called a gifting that they give. And then the gifting helps the people that didn't get the generators uh to get them now. Yeah, well, who's got one now? Uh, they haven't brought it out yet. Yeah, that, that, you see, that's the thing. Okay, I, what, what we're talking about here, uh, Don, is uh, in my estimation, and I know I'll get a lot of flack for it, but uh, in my opinion, it's just a pipe dream. And uh, they're talking about these generators that have more output than input. Same old story. I mean, if, if one were to be demonstrated for me, and I've invited people over the years to bring me even an over-unity toy, something that will hop around on the floor endlessly, uh, whatever it is, any over-unity anything, deliver it here, let's see it, let's rock and roll, and it never comes. But we get lots of talk, you know, like this fellow we just had on the air about these devices that will do the impossible. Well, the U.S. Patent Office gets so many of those things that it has a unique requirement for perpetual motion machines, which is that unlike other patents, you have to come in with a working copy, and no one's yet done it. Nobody comes in. Nope. But there's a lot of talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, now, this, is, this is a function more of our educational system than it is uh, energy technology. Oh, uh, well said. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Don and Art. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? Uh, I have to uh, take exception with a couple of the things that your uh, guest has said. First of all, let me uh, first address uh, his comments about indoor air quality. Okay. Um, 
because that is a specialty of mine. I work for a company that has provided, uh, we have proven our technology. You, you can't get enough airflow in a home to affect the air quality uh, through ventilation. There's a number of situations that take place in a home with the chemicals, uh, the, the dust, everything else. People react to that. We have proven technology. In fact, the Pentagon has used our technology to clean up their environment after the fire. Um, so indoor air quality is a real issue, and, and the tightness of the home has, and, and they've proven it, the asthma rates in third-world countries where people are living more outside, we have uh, are much, much lower than they here in the country. Um, but because I have a couple things I wanted to address real quickly, uh, let me let me ask if the guest has ever heard of a, a product called Sparfill. I've been in a home in Longboat Key, Florida. The electric bill was extremely low to keep it heated or cooled off. It's um, styrofoam-permeated concrete that is extremely fire-resistant, easy to work with. I've been in a beautiful home down in Longboat Key, and they built homes in upstate New York. Um, out, of, out of this product. All right, caller. One one thing at a time. First okay. of all, the, the technology you talked about. Yeah. Uh, that cleans air. What is this? What's it called? Absolutely. We uh, have duplicated. This Just, uh, no, 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 no. What is the technology, sir? It's ionization and oxidization, exactly what happens outside. Yeah, I use that in my own home. Okay, uh, that's okay. very good. It works. Uh, ionization and, does work. It, it, and uh, then, then the, um, the, uh, about the buildings with the, the concrete, I was curious, to, and that, I'm not taking exception with that. I was curious if he was aware of that, but the other thing I wanted well, to... Well, he addressed... You know, just yes, hold on ahead. now, please. I'm sorry. Uh, styrofoam. We addressed that earlier. What about styrofoam emess... Uh, sort of in within the concrete, you're saying? Within the I concrete. think that's, that's pretty safe because the, uh, the, uh, the uh, styrofoam is encapsulated in the concrete. How much of an R factor can you derive from such a combination? It's not good, but it's better than concrete. Uh, Better well, it's ex extremely efficient, and, and, and there are homes that, that, as I say, down along Boat Key, Florida, I've been in a beautiful home. You'd never know it was built that way. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask about real quickly is if your guest is aware of an item called a wind tree, which will, with five miles an hour or more, a turbine-generated uh, uh, power generator that will be coming out by the, with a company that I represent, uh, and we have working prototypes in North America, also in Germany, of uh, five miles an hour or more that will produce about uh, two kilowatts per hour. Now, it's not expected to replace completely uh, one need for using electric on the grid, but it will tie into the grid yeah. and certainly reduce... If, if All right, well, that's, that's efficient. Uh, you're talking, thank you, about efficient wind generation, and I, I think we've already said quite clearly tonight that that is probably, right now, the best economic uh, uh, alternative at about three cents uh, per kilowatt hour with the, with the modern stuff, that's probably what we should be looking at first. Yes, Don. Yeah, I think I think we're there with wind. Uh, regarding the um, <clears throat> the efficiency in any particular type of um, wind generator, there's a thing called the Betz coefficient, which is, <clears throat> as I recall, it's been years, but it's about 0.67 or something like that. The Betz coefficient is the maximum fraction of the kinetic energy of air that you can suck out of it with a with a wind turbine, and the machine that you've got uh, at your place, Art, uh, approaches the Betz coefficient. So, uh -huh. for, so the good news is that the efficiency of uh, wind turbines is approaching the theoretical maximum. And since it is a theoretical limit, not a practical limit, I don't I don't expect anything uh, radically better is going to come. You along. know, though, the companies that are selling this stuff, including the one that sold me mine, are struggling incredibly, economically struggling, 
just having one hell of a time of it, and uh, and and we're waiting for something large to emerge that is successful. But uh, boy, they're really struggling, most of them. Well, they will be because uh, at the present time, fossil fuels can still undercut them, and um, so uh, that's that's just straight market economics. The the choice is is clear. Uh, if wind energy is going to pay off in an area where you have competing fossil fuels so that's cheaper, you have to subsidize it at All this right. point in time. Listen, my friend, we're out of show. But, uh, boy, what a good one it has been. I really appreciate your being here tonight, Donald. I, your book available on Amazon.com? Yes, right? all the usual places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, okay. uh, off our website. Um, it's an awesome book. Thank you very much. So those who can afford it, I think the suggestion is good. Go out and buy it, uh, build your house, and then uh, donate it to the public library. Uh, How's that for an idea? That's a great idea. (laughs) Good night, Don. Art has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Don Wolfinghoff. I'm Art Bell from the high desert. Y'all have a good night out there, and I'll see you tomorrow night. It's going to be an interesting night tomorrow night, by the way. Somebody who can, well, you wait till tomorrow night. You're just not going to believe it.